Hi, this is Jalen for Dobbs, where tire buying is easy. At GoToDobbs.com, shop brands, sizes, pricing, and our amazing deals. With 40-plus locations, get same-day install. For tires, it's Dobbs. For deals you can use, click on GoToDobbs.com now. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. one to right center drifting back that ball is gone three home runs already for the Braves alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson I'm Brandon Kiley that is not the way that it was supposed to go last night that audio courtesy of the Braves TV network Alex it was a rough night for our guy Jake Woodford oh, finishes yo, with he, four and a third inning so he didn't go six hunt bone no huh. Close. Not six. Seven hits. Unfortunately, three of them went over the wall, including one that Wait. might as well have cleared the ballpark. It's still going. It's in Ballpark Village right now. Austin Riley, 476 feet to left center. Jim Edmonds, who has seen a decent amount of games at Bush Stadium, said, I've never seen a ball hit that far at Bush 3. He wasn't entirely wrong. There has never been a ball hit further by an opposing hitter at Bush three. So that's the way that things went last night for the Cardinals. They lose eight to four at home against the Atlanta Braves. They're now two and two on the season. And Alex, we got to talk about this rotation once again. It was obviously not a good night for Jake Woodford. It has not been a good start for the Cardinal starters. They have allowed 35 base runners in more than 17 innings. 23 of those base runners have reached on hits. They have a 7.1 ERA in their first four games of the season. That is good for 24th in Major League Baseball. Side note, amazing that a 7 ERA is not a bottom five ERA in baseball right now. Their 25th in batting average allowed, which is over 300 on the season. My reaction is basically Tony LaRussa. For everybody listening out there, I mean, you think I'm being unreasonable? It's the first week of the season. I mean, you guys, I don't understand this. I think they're going to be okay. (laughs) And I know that's not a popular response today in St. Louis. My my response is basically, yeah, man, it can't be this bad. Like, it's just, it's not going to be this bad this season. Am I having deja vu because four games into the blue season, I said... Defense can't be this bad. We have very specific roles on this show. You are positive Pete on the Blues. I'm positive Pete on the Cardinals. I'm just positive all the time. I'm negative Nancy on the Blues, and you play that role on the Cardinals. That's how this thing works, man. We both like to hold people accountable for their teams that they love here in St. Louis. So the reason that I'm saying it's not going to be, it can't be this bad is because we've got context to be able to utilize. We've mentioned how this team has some similarities to previous Cardinals teams, specifically with the offense, but also maybe you could argue with the lack of pitching. So I went back to 04, 05, 
06. People remember those teams pretty fondly, right? You would say that they were pretty good Cardinals teams? Some would say that they're very comparable to this year's team. Some. T-Bone, you liked those early 2000s I don't really remember a lot about them, but yeah, I do remember them being good. Learning how to go on a potty at that time. Only four. 2004, first time through the rotation, first five games of the year, an 8.9 ERA. Opposing hitters hit 320 against the Cardinal starters. Those starters, by the way, were Matt Morris, Jason Marquis, Woody Williams, Jeff Supon, and Chris Carpenter. 05, Cardinal starters, first time through the rotation, 6.5 ERA with a 3 365 batting average against 2006 again pretty good team I would say that ended all right for the Cardinals started the year three and two opposing hitters hit 300 against the Cardinals starters this is going to get better it's a terrible start to the season for the rotation nobody would argue otherwise Alex what's your response yeah I mean I'm as I'm the negative resident of Cardinals baseball on this show I'm not even panicking yet about it because you give starting pitchers a little bit of leniency especially when it comes to uh coming from spring training to the start of the season certain guys on this team uh didn't even have a full spring training like a miles michaelis jack flaherty we know after talking with michael gersh on opening day was working through a lot of his pitches And, and jake woodford i mean this is the first opening week start for him in his major league career so like there are circumstances in all of these um to where i sit back and say okay let's pump the brakes on hitting the panic button in the first bleeping week of the season as tony Larusa would say I-, I will say though that the uh the hard hit rate as bk likes to reference the nerdy numbers uh it's a little alarming especially watching jake woodford getting taken to ballpark village two out of those three home runs last night that's a little concerning um the fact that these guys have issues in terms of pitching to contact was a little bit concerning in the first week of the season but i also look at the opponent it's not like the team started up against the pittsburgh pirates and the cincinnati reds you started against the blue jays a favorite in the american league for a a world series and then of course the braves who of course is a a favorite in the nl for the world series so i'm pumping the brakes on panicking but it is something that you're looking at and saying "Ah, might be a little more concerned than we originally thought this season yeah i'm not really concerned i am a little surprised by what we've seen just because i thought the pitching would be slightly better to start the year based on the spring trainings that we saw from some of these guys but if you look at the outings, it's really just been, and I don't know if this makes anybody feel better, but it's really just been one inning that's really gotten away from each starter. Michaelis, it was the first inning. He finished with six strikeouts, didn't go very deep in that game, but he turned the ship after that first inning. Jordan Montgomery had the one inning against uh, Toronto, otherwise was pretty effective. Last night, it was the one inning for Jake Woodford where he just missed with his fastball twice and the Braves took him deep. So I, I look at it and I say, you know, it's just been one inning. You're going to kind of have those kinks early on in the year when it comes to your pitching. I, I, I'm not overly concerned because I, I don't think this rotation is that bad because you look at it and it's a bunch of veteran starters. It's not like we're talking about kids in the rotation. It's veterans that I can look on the back of their baseball reference or on their baseball card and go, okay, I know Michaelis is going to be anywhere between a three and a four ERA. He's not going to be this bad all year long. That's why I'm not overly concerned. We got a text assist from the 314. Uh, Jake Woodford stuff doesn't look that bad. It's time to tant on Brandon Kylie's Twitter account. What happened after you tweeted that out, buddy? So it was bad timing. <laughs> if you saw last night, Austin Riley went 580 yards. <laughs> so I tweet out right before it wasn't Austin Riley. It was the, it was the Albies home run right before his home run, literally the pitch before. 
man, I, I think Jake Woodford has had some pretty good stuff tonight. I still believe that to be true. I thought his stuff actually looked pretty good last yeah, night. Minus the fastball. He had more swings and misses than any other Cardinal starter to start out the season. Now, low bar to clear. <laughs> Is that a good thing? To be fair. Um, but I thought his slider for the most part, other than the one that he threw to Acuna, which did nothing, looked like it was improved from the one that we saw a year ago. When he was locating, I thought his fastball had some good jump to it. Unfortunately, he didn't locate a couple of times to Riley and Albies, and he got burnt for it. And then he had a slider that didn't move, and it got burnt by one of the best players in baseball, and Ronald Acuna jumped on it and hit it a mile. That happens, man. But, like, I I wasn't overly concerned by Jake Woodford yesterday. Did he get beat by a really good lineup? Did he miss his spot a decent number of times yeah was he nibbling a little bit later on yeah and i would like to see him improve upon that but i thought overall it was mostly okay there were actually strangely some encouraging signs from his start in that game um so i i'm gonna be the guy that comes on here and does the opposite of pee in your cheerios this morning and says hey it's gonna be all right. Look outside. The weather's pretty nice. Yeah, I know there's a storm coming, but it looks say, like, it looks real nice yeah. out there right now. Hey, I'll pee in the Cheerios. I was a little those fastball home runs. I'm thinking, well, maybe jerk, maybe it's too big of a stage for Jake Woodford. Three one four three nine 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 six four six is the Air Comfort Service text line from the three one four. BK, you're the numbers guy. You're always giving us some type of stat that tells us what, if what we are seeing is either sustainable or it's a good sign of things to come. Please give us some numbers today that will make us feel warm and fuzzy inside yeah, yeah, do that. about the good things to come from this pitching staff. I've got one for you. So, you know, I like to talk about BABIP, right? Batting average on balls in play. It typically like normalizes. There. By the end of the season, most season or most teams will have their BABIP from their rotation somewhere around 300. You know where the Cardinals is at right now? Anything above that means you're a little unlucky. Anything below that means you're getting pretty unlucky. Or your defense is just outstanding. Oh, it's like 400. Feels I, really I'd, high. But I'd love to know how this... 365. Your BABIP right now is 365, which means you are getting remarkably unlucky from your starting rotation so far in terms of the balls in play. And when you look at the Cardinals defense, it should actually probably be a little below 300 because they are so excellent defensively this year. I... I think that this will eventually get down pretty far and that is something that will help them. And so like when you're pitching to contact, you do kind of play the BABIP game and it can hurt you sometimes. And we saw that with Miles Michaelis's start and it's why I think they need to lean more into the swing and miss stuff. But that is something that if you're trying to be optimistic about the Cardinal starters right now, it is unsustainable how bad they've been. Didn't look like unlucky that uh, those balls were going out of the ballpark last night. So that's something that, that I can't really like, excuse. That looked like pure talent right there. Yeah, the I got, unlucky I got part, I could, and if we're going to sit here and say unlucky, I mean, luck was on Jack Flaherty's side when he started that one. The unlucky part was more on the Miles Michaelis start. No, where that's fair. Those were plopping down right in between the center fielders and your infielders. Which we all said after Miles Michaelis' start, this is not going to sustain. Even Michaelis said, like, I didn't induce any ground balls in that game. That's not going to continue to happen. The concernometer is on Flaherty and Woodford right now for me after two starts. That, that's fair. Um, I I would say of the guys that we saw so far, Flaherty's the one that had the most concerning outing to me as well, uh, especially relative to expectations. And that is including what we saw last night. 
Speaking of the Cardinal starters, Steven Matz is on the mound tonight. And it's quietly an important start for Steven Matz. Here's what Ollie Marmol had to say after the game yesterday on what he's expecting from his starting rotation. We will get more. Um, we trust our guys. Um, these first four games are the ideal. Not really. Um, but do we feel like our guys are going to be more than capable of doing what we're going to ask of them? Yes. Uh, I don't think uh, the first four games are indicative of what our year is going to look like from our starting rotation. So he's expecting more. I'm expecting more. I think we're all still expecting them to be better than what we've seen so far. You're also going to need your starters to get a little deeper into these games because I've pushed back on the whole idea of an innings deficit this season. I don't think that's something that's a problem for them. I think their problem is the lack of a front-end starter. But right now, you are running at a bit of an innings deficit. Your starters are not getting deep enough into games. And I'm not saying they got to go eight or nine. This isn't 1965. But you do need more than, like, four. You need them to get deeper than five innings into the game if possible and going into tonight for Steven Matz like man a six inning start would be really nice out of him you don't have to get a perfect game or anything like that but six innings handing it off to Palante and then to Verhagen and then to Helsley would be a really nice way to go or maybe getting Giovanni Gallegos into a game at some point in the first week of the season would be a positive so I'm not saying, especially with a day game coming up tomorrow, it, it'd be really nice if they're able to use just a couple of bullpen arms going into tonight's game. Steven Matz is a guy that I'm very excited about. Strange thing to say about Steven Matz, but legitimately excited about going into this season. I think he can have a significant bounce back here for the Cardinals. He does have that swing and miss stuff that we've talked so much about. This is a quietly pretty big start for him. Yeah, especially because there's a couple of guys right now that I'd like to avoid in the bullpen, one being Jordan Hicks, the other being Chris Stratton for the struggles that we've seen. I, well, I the other I'm, thing is like Hicks is unavailable. Packy Naughton completely unavailable oh, yeah. today as well. The other thing is I, I do want to see swing and miss stuff because we haven't seen that with anybody. And I know Woodford got the most swing and misses out of most people. And for that, I'm not really optimistic about. So that as much as I want to see him give the bullpen a day off, which would be very nice. I also want to see some swing and miss stuff because there's got to be some sliver of hope out of that rotation that you do have swing and miss stuff because five guys pitching on pitching to contact is going to be an issue. Yeah, I, I'm excited to see Steven Matz. I, I predicted at the beginning of the year he was going to have one of his best seasons of his career. Like in spring training, you saw the swing and miss stuff. He was very effective, was holding opponents to a below 200 batting average. Like I, I'm genuinely excited to see what he has to offer tonight. And to your guys' point, they need somebody to cover probably six innings so they can really piece things together and it feel a little bit smoother because as you said they got two bullpen arms that's unavailable they probably would like to avoid stratton so you're already down to what five arms in your bullpen and you really don't want to burn them because you don't have an off day until thursday so i this is a quietly big start for steven Matz and one that i'm excited about because i i do think he's going to have a really big year for the cardinals 314-399-9646 is the air comfort service tax line to get involved in the show today we do have one quick thing that i wanted to get to uh, before we get to break, this one comes from the 618. BK, why do you think it is that Ollie Marmel is so obsessed with Jordan Hicks? I don't think he's obsessed with Jordan Hicks. I think that he is of the mind that Jordan Hicks is one of their better relievers. Now, you can agree or disagree with that, and I think that both sides have reasonable cases to be made. Jordan Hicks has not been good so far this year. He's given up six hits and five walks so far in three innings. That's 11 base runners in three innings. That is awful. 
And last night in the first inning, it was not good enough. Uh, the first game of the year, you could argue, hey, that was really unlucky. He got hit not hard at all, and it was kind of that BABIP thing that I was just talking about. That's something that was completely unsustainable. Then in the second game, he was walking everybody. He just didn't have any command. And then last night, it was a little bit of a combination of both, getting hit hard and didn't have his command there. The second inning looked a lot better. They need Jordan Hicks to get this thing figured out. And so I think what you saw last night, the reason why I think he pitched two innings was because Ollie said, hey, you kind of got to wear this, dude. Like, go out there and get things figured out. In a game situation, try to get yourself right. So I think that's why they went back to him for that second inning. And he also said, like, hey, listen, he's not going to be available tomorrow and potentially Wednesday either way. Might as well go ahead and get a little bit more. Try to get some length out of him to save our bullpen for Tuesday's game. I think that's why he ended up in that game. But they they need Jordan Hicks to get this thing figured out because because right now what he's doing you can't trust him in any sort of high leverage spot. I, I think he's already out of that mix. I think Drew Verhagen at this point should be above him in the pecking order of which guys you trust in those late inning roles. Coming up next, there's a little bit of a different feel to Cardinals games right now, given what the offense is that they're leaning on. We'll explain that coming up next. You're on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. I like where we're at. I mean, that entire game, we never felt like we were out of it, and that's a good feeling. We're taking really good at-bats, tough at-bats. Um, I mean, one through nine, we're feeling really good about what our guys are, are able to do. So uh, did we leave some guys on? Yes, but uh, you got to get on. So, Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. That was Ollie Marmol, audio courtesy of Bally Sports Midwest, yesterday after the Cardinals' 8-4 to loss in which they did go 1-for-11 with runners in scoring position. They left 11 men on base yesterday. It's not what you want. That being said, we know this offense is good. They're going to come through in most of those situations. You ended up having uh, some of the guys that you trust the most coming up with guys on, and they just weren't able to come through yesterday. That's going to change. They'll be all right in that area. The thing that I pay more attention to is how many guys they ended up getting on in that game. They finished the game with 12 hits. They also had three walks in the game. You finished with 15 opportunities with men on base in a game against a team like Atlanta, specifically with Charlie Morton on the mound. You feel pretty good about your opportunity, especially offensively. Alex, this was yet again another game. I think this is three out of four now where at least eight of your starting nine players finished the game with a hit. That's remarkably deep when it comes to what you have in your lineup. And I don't know about you guys. I never once felt like the Cardinals were out of that game. And this is probably the biggest difference between how I feel about the team today and how I have felt about the team really over the last few years, which is even when the Braves went up six to one early on, I was like, ah, that's not insurmountable. Cardinals could find a way to come back from that. Now, I wasn't like necessarily expecting them to do that. That's a tough thing to do, come back down five runs against a quality opponent like the Braves. But I thought they at least had the opportunity to do so. And you got late in the game, and they, they had that opportunity, ended up giving up those insurance runs later. But um, I feel like this team has the ability to come back from pretty significant leads because of how good this offense has been early on. Yeah, it's just the feel right now with this offense. And last season, if that same scenario were to take place... I- 
would have turned the game off because you're talking about being down by six runs in what the sixth inning. And it felt like, all right, well, you haven't been able to get to the starting pitcher and God only knows you're going to find a way to get to this bullpen. So it might just be a bad night for their offense, but it, it, it's the ability to have different, different ways to go about it throughout your lineup. Like you don't just have the, the home runner bust guys in your lineup. You've got the on base guys. You've got the guys who can move runners over with speed on the base paths. I mean, this team can go from first to third really well, which has been a fun thing to watch this season. But then you're also talking about just the hard contact with the Paul Goldschmidt or a Jordan Walker. It's different ways to go about it. And there were multiple scenarios last night where you get one guy on and then somebody walks or they get a base hit. And you're talking about one swing of the bat in that scenario. There's five guys in your lineup that can do that for you. So it, it it's the best part of this team this season. And I feel like we're going to sound like a broken record throughout the year saying that. But the fact that there is a threat to put two, three runs on the board, every position in your batting order is why this offense feels different. And I know Ali cited that last night saying like, we were still in this game. Yeah. You know, I don't disagree with your point last year. I mean, it was basically, Hey, if you're down six to one, man, good luck. Goldie Arnado and pools. Like the offense wasn't going to be built around where, Hey, our seven, eight, nine guys are coming up and they have a threat to score. Like that just wasn't a thing for the Cardinals lineup last year. And you look at the lineup this year, and you've got Jordan Walker batting eighth, who played really well, ran into some tough luck last night at the plate. And everybody in the lineup that's one at the end of the day was hitting 300 or better outside of Brendan Donovan. And we know Donovan's going to be an average hitter. So I I look at this lineup, and and to your point of not being home run or nothing for this team, not only do they have power in the lineup, but everybody that's in the lineup can hit for average too, like Tyler O'Neill. Everybody views him as a strikeout and home run guy, but Tyler O'Neill, when right, does hit for average. Nolan Gorman play a decent amount. Uh, yeah. Nolan last people, night was really good at bat. Nolan Gorman in the minor leagues hit for a decent average, and we saw last night he had two hits, no, nothing that was a home run, but he got on base because he's hitting for average. So this lineup can beat you with power if you make mistakes. I mean, we saw Goldschmidt hit an absolute shot last night, but then you've also got the guys that could also, you know, at the bottom of the order, those six, seven, eight hitters. Yes, they've got some thump, but they also know hey, I need to get on base to start a rally. And you're seeing for that from them early on here in the season. The other thing is, like, they've gone up against four playoff-quality pitchers, starting pitchers so far this year, Manoa, Gossman, Bassett, and Morton. All four of those guys, I would be surprised if, when we get to the playoffs, they're not starting a game in the postseason for their respective teams. The Cardinals, against those four starters, have forced them out after a total of 18 innings. They have 31 hits against them, five walks against them. They've only struck out 11 times and they have scored 20 runs in 18 innings against those four starters so far this year. Last year, one of the big talking points, and it was at times a fair one. I pushed back against it, but I'll give, I will say that it it, it was a little bit fair. Cardinals did not do well against playoff caliber starting pitching so far this season. They've seen four of them in four games. They have, done about as well as you could possibly expect against those four starters. They did not strike out a single time against Chris Bassett, and last night they had one strikeout, one, against Charlie Morton. Say what you will about Morton and make jokes about his age. Man, that guy's a really good starting pitcher. Like, I think you can make a case that if you could have one of Charlie Morton, and I know this is going to be something that gets me in trouble here, one of Charlie Morton or Adam Wainwright in a playoff rotation, I think I would take Charlie Morton because of his swing and miss stuff that he has right now available to him. You saw last night. Dude still throwing 96 with a nasty breaking ball. 
That guy's a good player, and the Cardinals were able to make him look not so great yesterday at times. So I've been impressed by the offense, and I've specifically been impressed by what they've done against quality starting pitching against them. Alex, one player in that lineup has impressed the hell out of you, and it's not just what he's doing at the plate. He's going. Good job. The throw to second is on the money. They got it. Contreras is fired up. you got to be. First time, big game coming out here. First guy trying to really get ready to go and throws it right on the money. One of the best players in the league. Gotcha. Who was more amped up, Jim Edmonds or Wilson Contreras at the throw out in that game? Uh, I have fallen in love with Wilson Contreras, and it took games to do that, <laughs> which should probably should have been when he tried to start a fight in spring training. That's where it was. But and the guy's a gamer. First of all, everybody was talking about the defensive side of Wilson Contreras being a liability. And although we really haven't seen it be a problem, I'm sure some people have noticed it. Others haven't with him working behind the plate. I think it's been fine, but he's thrown two guys out that have tried to steal on him. And in the fire that you get following that last night, I mean, we're talking the fourth game of the season. It's April 3rd, and he's already barking at the bench when he throws a guy out at second base. You just need guys like that. And I know Nolan Arenado had that last season, but more guys like that can benefit a team. And then it's just the offensive ability. Every time he stepped to the plate, you're always expecting something out of him. Whereas in the past, and this is no disrespect to Yachty, every time Yachty came to the plate, it was, well, ground out, well, strike out, well, not getting much here. Wilson Contreras now batting behind Goldschmidt and Arenado. I'm looking at this as, all right, we're about to start a rally right now because of him. He, he, he. He's my new favorite dude on this team right there with Nolan Arenado. Yeah, he's been really impressing me. He's hitting the ball with authority. Now, he doesn't have a home run yet, but, man, he is absolutely crushing the baseball. And defensively, I mean, that cannon of an arm makes up for any kind of uh, slow delivery to the plate that a pitcher might have. I, I don't know if anybody on the Cardinals rotation has a quick delivery in terms of, I don't remember what the number is of how fast he will be from uh, the pitcher's mound to home plate, but I don't think anybody's particularly fast on this rotation for the Cardinals. Contreras can make up for that difference with his arm. I mean, two for two, really impressive when you look across Major League Baseball and the numbers have just completely skyrocketed with stolen bases, and it starts to become a bit of a potential theme for the St. Louis Cardinals where it was always, hey, you can't run on Yadier Molina. Well, the, the, right now, that's it's true. You can't run, you can't on, run Contreras. on Wilson Contreras. He's two for two, and that that is going to be something to keep an eye on because if he continues to have this success against the base running game, it changes the outlook for the St. Louis Cardinals because then you're not getting those guys that with a single can get to second base, get that extra base like a Tommy Edmond can and get a guy runner in scoring position. No, he's got to wait over there at first base and it takes potentially an extra hit to get him home. Yeah, I've been really impressed by what he's done so far defensively. Now, game calling, we'll see. We'll see what that looks like over the long haul. But defensively, especially when it comes to his arm, and we've seen it already a couple of times, and it's not just random guys that he's throwing out. Yesterday it was Ronald Acuna Jr., who's pretty damn good runner, uh, able to get him. He's the only guy in Major League Baseball that's two for two on caught stolen so far this year. Um, the only other guy that has multiple uh, guy, multiple throwout so far is Arizona's uh, catcher, the guy they got from Toronto, just, Moreno. Oh. Um, so he's he's one of just two guys that have thrown out multiple runners so far this year. It's been impressive to watch. It's a good start to the season from Wilson Contreras. Somebody on the text line mentioned a little bit ago uh, that they've been surprised by how his power has not played at Bush yet. Give it time. 
Uh, give it time. I, I think that's coming. He's hitting the ball with authority, and really, that's all he's you want to see. Hard. He's hitting yeah. it hard, and he's doing so consistently. So far this year, he has a, a hit in every game. That's really all you're asking for. And he's not a liability on the base paths, which is also a really good thing to have. He's more he athletic runs. than I think people give him credit for. So that's going to be something that is an asset to this team because I, I who is the worst runner Arenado, on the roster probably. other than Arenado? Oh. Is it Contreras? And if so, on the roster or uh, in the starting lineup? Because lineup, on the roster, probably. Okay, starting lineup. I guess Burleson? You could argue Burleson because he's getting opportunities right now. Because I think Wilson Contreras can. I mean, he can go first to third if you need him to. He's got the speed and the agility to do that. Uh, you know who's really impressed me so far, and we talked about it a little bit last year, but I think it went under the radar a bit. Nolan Gorman is a really good base runner, guys. That first to third last night was huge. And you remember the play last year where he ran through the bag at second base to be able to create an opportunity at home? Like oh, he's, yeah. He, he's a guy that's really quietly very good on the bases. He's not crazy athletic, but he's got a little bit more mobility to him than what you would expect because he's kind of a bigger guy. And he's he's got some some high baseball IQ as well. So um, it, they're really good on the bases. And you give a lot of credit to the coaching staff for that, but also give a lot of credit to the president of baseball operations for putting together a team that has a decent amount of athleticism. Coming up next, we saw the NCAA tournament title yesterday awarded to UConn once again. Wasn't a particularly compelling game, but that's kind of what it's been for UConn in this tournament. We'll talk about their dominant stretch and what it means in the big picture for college basketball. Coming up next, you're on 101 ESPN. All these crazy alien stories can't be true, can they? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasts podcasting platforms and you can also find it on uappodcast.com we're right back to the pk and ferrario podcast presented by dobbs tire and auto centers on 101 espn Five national championships since 1999. Five national championships. All this blue blood thing. In this generation, Connecticut has been the most dominant championship men's basketball program. They've done it with three different coaches. But this dude right here, he's going to be around for a while. And this will not be his last championship. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. That audio courtesy of CBS and ESPN as UConn wins last night the national championship. They have now won five national titles in college basketball, Alex, in the last 24 years. They have done so under three different coaches, and this one was their most dominant performance in this year's NCAA tournament. UConn's average margin of victory, the average margin was 20 points. That is the fourth largest margin of victory on average in NCAA tournament history behind only the 1996 Kentucky Wildcats, the 2016 Villanova team, and 2009 North Carolina. Alex, when you look at this year's UNC team, they're going to be remembered as one of the most dominant NCAA tournament teams. 
How are you going to look back on this year's tournament in its entirety? Though? I, I, I keep asking my, myself the question, like, how did they do this? Like, you look at the... They were dominant. There's no question that they were dominant. What was the stat that you sent us last night? All 17 of their non-conference games, they won by double digits, Mm -hmm. and they're undefeated. That's insane in itself. But then you look at, and I know it's in the Big East, but then you look at like the conference play, 13-7. And And you go back the last couple of years uh, since uh, Hurley's been there, 13-6 and last year where they got into the tournament, 11-6 and the year prior. Like, usually when you talk about these teams that are dominant in the tournament, you say, oh, yeah, like Kansas or Dukes or um, or, or Gonzaga's, like, where they're dominant in conference play throughout the season. And you're like, yeah, it makes sense how they got there. The question is how. And that's what I kept saying to myself, watching this team just wipe the floor with every opponent they went up against. I hope that it gives more context to how good the Big East is. Yeah. Like, you look at the top of that conference, Xavier, Creighton, Providence, Marquette, and UConn. That's some pretty damn good teams in that conference that they went up against this year. So why did they end up struggling a little bit more in conference play? Because it was a gauntlet. Everybody talked about how good the Big Ten was this year. The Big 12 was this year. And you look at the Big East, maybe it wasn't as deep as those conferences were, but the top of that conference was every bit as good as any other conference. It's it's kind of similar to the SEC, honestly. And that's what I was like, going to wonder. People attribute the SEC's greatness to the top of the conference. They're talking about Alabama every year. Maybe it's Tennessee this past season, Georgia, right? You've got like three or four teams that on any given season could compete to get to the college football playoff. The Big East this year was kind of that way when it came to the NCAA tournament, where you had three or four teams that if you had them in your final four, I don't think it was crazy to do so. In fact, you had like three of them that had a real shot to be able to get there once we got into the tournament. But you look at this UConn team and with Sonogo and Hawkins in particular, sometimes it is as simple as do you have two dominant players? And if you do, that can be enough in a down year for the rest of college basketball to be able to go off into the sunset and go on a glorious ride through the NCAA tournament. So what happened for this team? Now, they were deeper than just that. I mean, if you watched any amount of time with UConn in this tournament, you saw the team's really good, and they've got like six dudes that are excellent, and they have very specific roles. They were well-coached. They had very good players top to bottom, but they had two dominant guys that were able to carry that team. And to localize this a little bit, Alex, whether it's UConn or San Diego State or FAU, whoever your team is that you latched on to in this year's final four in your mind, what is the lesson to be learned there? Like, is there a lesson to be learned for teams like Mizzou for teams like Illinois for teams like SLU? What can they latch on to, to learn from the teams that were able to go on a run? Do you T-bone or or you Alex have anything that you would say is like an overriding theme? I, I think when I, when I watched UConn this year, it was not just where they, great offensively because everybody does turn their head and go, man, look at that offense from the UConn. They were great defensively. I mean, you look at their play in the tournament. Defensively, they were really sound. I, Top so, 10 in the country this year so defensively. To me, it comes down to, you know, not only is it, we always talk about, man, you got to be really good offense because who's always the trendy pick when you're filling out your bracket? It's those teams that shoot the three-point ball really well. It also comes down to defense, too. I mean, you saw Gonzaga fall to uh, UConn, man. get obliterated by them. 
because they couldn't play defense. So for me, it was a little bit of twofold to where, okay, not only do you need to have depth offensively like UConn had, but you also got to be really good on the defensive end of the floor. And, and that's where some of these teams fall short. Gonzaga fell short because they couldn't play defense. You look at the Illini, they couldn't do it because they just had no offense. They could Mizzou. play defense. Mizzou the same way. They struggled to rebound and get on the glass, and that was another thing for UConn. They were very good on the glass as well. So for me, it, it's almost more of, hey, yes, offense is definitely going to win, but even though we talk a lot about offense, you still have to be really good defensively to make a run in the NTA tournament. That also ended up being the downfall of Miami. Like, yeah. for all, all the great offense that Miami played this year, when they went up against a truly spectacular offense in Connecticut, they couldn't get stops. They couldn't get enough stops that were necessary, and then their offense faltered down the stretch, and they didn't have anything to keep them above water. That defense is almost like a flotation device when you get into the, the postseason play where it's like, hey, your offense doesn't always show up on a night-to-night basis. We saw this with Mizzou a lot this year, where like, hey, they didn't get the shots to go down early. They ended up being down by like 12, and maybe they would have a run in them to be able to come back, but they just didn't get enough stops sometimes to be able to get the necessary stops to get back into it. You could always have that defense to lean on, where if the shots weren't falling early, you knew that run was coming offensively, and they were going to get the stops. And that was what we saw last night with San Diego State. San Diego State got off to a really nice start in that game. And then for like six minutes, they went without a field goal because UConn just suffocated them defensively. That's kind of my lesson as well. You look at what Mizzou's trying to do this offseason and how they're trying to put together this team. Man, you better get some more size. You better get some athletes that can really go up against the power five competition that you're going up against. Because I think Mizzou could have a really good team coming back next season. You add two, maybe three pieces to that thing, especially if you get one or two big men that are able to rebound and play some defense and control the interior. I thought that was the biggest thing with Sonogo. That guy, you you could not score on him inside. If you're able to do that, you're suddenly in in the competition, in the conversation with some of these teams. It's transfer portal too, right? I mean, that's how UConn shaped their team. They had needs. San Diego State for sure. San Diego State, yeah. They they had needs, and they addressed them through that transfer portal. And frankly, that's what we just saw with the Missouri Tigers last season, and we're about to see it again with this upcoming season. And they're already in on some of the best players in the country in the transfer portal. And Illinois, there's there's crickets as to what they're doing. Uh, Bring back some, some of the guy same from guys. Minnesota that I think the only reason they like him because he dropped 31 against them. So oh. they saw him play pretty well. That's the old blues mentality of, well, if he scores goals against us, he's got to be good. So they don't have yeah. a Caleb Love equivalent? No, no. no. Coming up next, 314 399 9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line for questions and answers here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe. It's PK and Ferrario's questions and answers. Brought to you by Insperity. Do HR issues have you boxed in? Expand your possibilities at Insperity.com. Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. Our Blues Insider for the Athletic and 101 ESPN. Jeremy Rutherford joins the show coming up here in about 10 minutes or so. But right now, it's time for questions and answers. This one comes from the 314. Guys, will any of you be checking in on the Masters? And if so, are you just seeing what Tiger is doing? Is there a specific guy that you're following? What are you looking for at the Masters this week? I, I always watch the Masters because that's like 
as much as you look forward to baseball, that's the true start of spring. It's also once you get that master's weekend to sit down and relax. Like usually, typically that's Sunday for me to sit back and relax, which now is Easter. So I got like 18 Easter egg hunts to go to, which will be always exciting. But oh, I didn't think about that. Yeah, yeah you're in prime Easter. Yeah, age. So we are Easter egg hunt city right now, Saturday and Sunday. But yeah, I always enjoy watching it. It's checking in on Tiger, but it is always just kind of seen because it does seem like that's the um, that's the welcome to the big stage moment for some up and coming golfers when you win the Masters. Yeah, I'll, I'll check in just to see who's atop the leaderboard. Not so much necessarily Tiger, just to check to see who's on the leaderboard. But I, I typically don't watch a ton of golf, so I, I mostly if it's like a big major, I just T-Bone's check in. Got to get on golf, fantasy golf. Yeah, that's got to be his hey, next thing. Do you know the odds if you strike it with the guy that wins the Masters? Oh. Yeah, oh, it's I'm great. Sure it's you great. can get some really nice odds. You can get some awesome odds. And you can bet it a million different ways on, like, who's going to make or miss the cut, uh, who's going to lead after, after specific rounds. Like, bet, yeah, but see, I, I like betting to, on I golf like to gamble. is, like, the second best thing to betting on football, I would say. I, I, it's I like, fun. I like to gamble and play fantasy sports on the sports, like, I'm going to watch, and I just don't have interest in watching golf. You, I find oh, it boring. It. You'll watch it if you're betting on it. No, I can promise I, you that. No, the reason I'm not betting on it is because I don't want to watch it. That, that's the whole reason, so I'm not going to bet on it. Somebody asked if I hired an Easter Bunny again. We all remember that story last year, right? Yeah. yeah I no, we. Uh, I told my wife that's not happening ever again. That's probably smart. One one storyline that I am curious about is who the how the guys on um, the Live Tour end mm-hmm. up doing at the Masters. I know that's something that everybody's going to be watching. Some animosity for, like, with it, too. DJ coming back and just like hanging out playing golf yeah, 25 to 1 odds and you know DJ will probably be at the top of that leaderboard because it seems Masters is when he does it exactly him and Brooks Kepka like yeah. they exclusively show up for major tournaments in the past so this is nothing new for them like Brooks Kepka's 44 to 1 right now on the FanDuel Sportsbook app to win the Masters do I think he's going to win the Masters no do I like 44 to 1 odds yeah, T Bone's like, oh, T Bone, uh, after forty four to one no, odds. No, I I want to watch baseball and not golf, so I want to watch baseball. By the way, Tiger is seventy to one. Don't bet on that. That's a bad. That's a bad. Hey, bet. you know baseball goes for one hundred and sixty two plus games, man. You only get the Masters for a weekend, that's right? Yeah, and it's entertaining. Uh, all right, from the three one four guys, how Terrible. realistic do you think it is for the Blues to resign Ryan O'Reilly? I would put it on a scale of one to 10, like a four. And that might seem high for some people. You can't rule it out because if O'Reilly wants to be here and he's willing to take a pay cut or whatever, he's willing to sign for what Doug Armstrong's willing to offer. I could see it happening because if there's one thing you're going to need, you're going to need a face-off guy, a defensive-minded player, and somebody who can have that leadership role with the group. Um, but I think it's going to come down to money, and somebody is going to want Ryan O'Reilly for a higher price than Doug Armstrong. I'd go zero. I, I don't think there's any chance Ryan O'Reilly is back. I, I don't think his age fits into the window that the Blues have been describing of the players that they're looking for. And though I don't disagree, they need someone to win faceoffs, and that is something they're going to have to figure out in the offseason. I also don't know how they view themselves going into next season. I, I don't think they view themselves as a playoff team next year. I, I think they view themselves as building towards becoming a playoff team. And if that's the case, then you don't necessarily need a Ryan O'Reilly. You try and figure out that role internally or looking for someone younger that can do it. So I think it's 0% chance that Ryan O'Reilly is back wearing the blue note next season. I'll just leave a little bit open because why not? I'll say it's a 4% chance, but I tend to be more on the T-bone side of things where it's like, if they wanted to bring back Ryan O'Reilly, they had their opportunity to do so. And they opted against it. And I think it was the right decision. 
I don't think that he is in on their timeline of when they're going to be winning again. So I, I don't think they're going to give him a multi-year deal. I do not think that he is going to be a part of their future. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service X line from the 314. Guys, way too early prediction. How many all-stars do you believe that the Cardinals will have this season? And who are they? BK's Goldie Arnado, definitely. Goldie do we think Arnado? Wilson Contreras? I think Wilson Contreras. I think he's got a real shot. He, he's got a shot. I don't know if he'll be able to beat out. Well, yeah, he could probably make it. I'm thinking starters, but yeah, he Will could Smith probably make will it. get in, I think. And then JT Real, Real Muto. Muto. And that's where it gets tough is like yeah, maybe that third catcher. Smith. Yeah. Uh, so I'll I'll say Contreras. I'm still sticking with Nolan Gorman's going to make the all-star team because he looks freaking awesome. Um, I think that might be it right now. Trying to think if there's going to be any of those outfielders. The other DH options are not particularly inspiring around the National League. So I, I actually think Nolan Gorman has a real chance. Shame on you guys for not year. saying Brendan Donovan. So that's what I was going to go to next. I, I think Donovan's going to be kind of squeezed out of the conversation unless he just has a monster season offensively. And here's why. I think Ozzy Albies is just the guy that every year you ride into the, the all-star game. He's kind of the throw in, right? You, you tend to get this at certain positions where like, just by name value alone, people are going to circle them and put them onto their all-star ballots. The other thing that I think is going to happen, Cincinnati has to have somebody that is an all-star. I think Jonathan India is likely to be that guy for them this season. He looks like he's primed for a bounce back season. He's hitting the ball hard again this year. Um, so that that's going to make it tough for Brendan Donovan to crack the lineup at second base. So I that's probably the thing that will keep him out of it. And then Jeff McNeil, if he ends up having a good season this year, is a guy that has the name name value as well. Donovan has to get that name recognition first before he can then be, be that player, unless he just dominates offensively. The one that I'm 50-50 on is Tyler O'Neill. Oh, interesting. Just because, I mean, the offense has looked good for him. We've already seen the one home run, but, man, that at bat yesterday he took was was really solid. Um, and then you've got the base running aspect of it with him. You've got the defense. If I were to side with one outfielder, it would be Tyler O'Neill, and I'd, I think I'd lean more towards he makes the all-star roster. See, the only reason I wouldn't say he makes the all-star roster is just because the outfield is so loaded in the but National But you always League. know people back out, too, or injuries that's pop fair. up, and that's where I wonder if Tyler O'Neill gets I, that I look. Could, I could see that. I wasn't necessarily thinking that route, but I, I could see where that's the case. The only reason I just don't view him as, like, the initial uh, – all-star player right it's just how loaded the outfield position is in the nl i would say it's over under at four and a half is what i would set the over under today and i would say it's more likely that it's under than over but as of today i would say goldie and arenado are locks because they're always locks i think you're likely to get nolan gorman i would say wilson Contreras would be my fourth one and then one of your outfielders or brendan donovan is it a little alarming we haven't said ryan helsley well actually i was just gonna say where does it say we are at and just kind of confirms our concern that we haven't brought up one pitcher well i think that was the expectation coming into the year though the only guy that i might have brought up in this conversation before the year was ryan helsley and he just hasn't had a good start i I think he'll be fine you know adam wainwright's gonna get in right that's gonna be the the, the honorable that's gonna be the commissioner's what do you do uh Throwing it out there. Joey Votto, who could be in his last year. I I was thinking the same thing when I mentioned that the Reds, you're probably going to get one guy in. 
I think they'll add Votto as the extra kind of the way that they did last year with Albert. I could see them doing it with Votto and Wayno, just inviting both to the festivities, have them around for the weekend. Coming up next, Jeremy Rutherford, Blues Insider for The Athletic. Want to ask him about what he's expecting the lineup to look like tonight for the St. Louis Blues. And are they losing hard for Bedard enough? We'll talk about that next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. It's time for the Rutherford Report on 101 ESPN. Anything you folks want to know about the fascinating world of pro hockey, here we go. That's Alex Ferrario. He's Tanner Hendrickson and I'm Brandon Kylie. going out to the 101 ESPN hotline right now to be joined by the Blues Insider for The Athletic and 101 ESPN. He's Jeremy Rutherford joining us here on the show after getting his updates down at the rink. JR, appreciate the time as always, man. How you doing today? Anytime, boys. Doing well, doing well. Uh, so what is the update? Let's get the uh, the injury status first, get the kind of logistics out of the way. What's the update on Thomas Buchnevich? What are what do you got on them? Are they going to be able to play tonight for the Blues? Yeah, so Robert Thomas and Pavel Buchnevich were both on the ice this morning uh, for the team's morning skate. To my knowledge, that's the first time they've been back with the team. Uh, neither really participated in the power play drills, so it didn't look like either one would play tonight. But after practice, Craig Bruby said that Robert Thomas is a game-time decision, so there's a chance that he could play. He did rule out Pavel Buchnevich tonight. So with that being said, Jr., it's another opportunity for Kasperi Kapanen to get the chance at the center spot. Do you feel like the opinions have changed at all in terms of Kapanen as a centerman, or is he just holding that spot for one of these guys to get back? I really think he's holding that spot. I mean, obviously, when you lose two guys, uh, Robert Thomas especially, and then Pavel Buchnevich, who they're trying to get a look at uh, center down the stretch here, see if he can be that type of guy next season for him, which I believe he probably will be. Uh, they, they need guys in that middle. So I think with Kapanen, Craig Berube told us the other day, he really felt like that's just a, a situation where they're going to put Kapanen there now to hold down the fort. You know, does it pop up down the line? It could. Uh, he's looked okay there, but I think his uh, future, he's played a lot of wing in his career. That's where he's most comfortable and probably where, where, where we'll see him in the future. Talking to Jeremy Rutherford here on 101 ESPN. Uh, JR, when you look at what the Blues have done recently, they've picked up more points than I would like to see, frankly, uh, because <laughs> I'm rooting for that draft pick to get better and better. And uh, they, they've picked up a decent amount of points here lately. What do you make of the Blues' improved goal scoring, I would say, uh, and their ability to get points down the stretch here. What does it say about this team? Yeah, I think it's a combination of things. I think you get some new players in here who want to prove something. We've talked about that before. But I do think that their element of speed adds something. Like a number of these goals that we've seen during this offensive uptick have been produced, I think, because of that speed. Uh, and just moving the puck better up ice. Now, granted, if we talk about the other side of this, a lot of goals against, you know, when you're up the ice offensively, maybe you're not back defensively. That's been a problem all season for the Blues. Uh, but I think these guys are doing a good job at gelling and, and working hard. And, and to be honest, listen, earlier in the season, you didn't see that effort. You didn't see the team working for each other, playing as a group. And I think down the stretch, whether it's not being in the playoffs, closing it out with pride, you know, new guys in here, whatever it is, they're just coming together. And I think playing harder, even when they're down two or three goals, like we saw the other night against uh, Boston. So, you know, you can look at it as a situation where they're trying to close out the season strong. I think there's a lot of effort there effort leads to production so I, I feel like one of the guys that's maybe most symbolic of both the good and the bad for the blues this year is jordan Cairo. he's up to 36 goals on the season which is remarkable 
but he's also had some truly horrific games. Like Saturday, for example, you get to the end of the period and you've got the back and forth between he and Craig Berube. I know you guys were able to ask about that and both of them gave the stock answer of, hey, that's that's going to stay internal for us. How would you evaluate Jordan Cairo's season, the, the good and the bad, JR? Yeah, I think it's been okay. And it's odd to say with a guy who has the goal total 36 and 70-plus points for the second row, year in a row, I think it's odd to say that. Uh, but I think you just have to say it's okay based on the things we've seen from his overall game. And the, the the good part here is that there's a lot of room for growth, right? If you're seeing a guy who can score potentially 40 goals and put up 80, 90, even 100 points one day, and you're talking about him just playing okay, that's a good sign that there's a lot of room for growth. But the, the flip side of that is there's got to be a willingness to grow. And when you see a little uh, headbutting, as we saw in Nashville, between the coach and the player, you know, I think you, you draw your own conclusion. You just hope that uh, he's willing. But like I said, I talked to Craig Ruby a couple weeks ago, and he said he feels like Robert Thomas and, and Jordan Kyrou are guys who want to be pushed and, and want to learn. So, you know, incidents like we see on the bench uh, in Nashville are probably byproducts of that. So, you know, good season overall if you look at the numbers for Jordan Kyrou. But, gosh, if he could just, you know, show some more awareness, be better defensively, and show that desire, I think you get an incredible player there. So, Jarrett, kind of an odd question, but we have five games left in the regular season before the end of the year, and you figure out where this Blues team is going to be drafting. And, you know, we get a ton of people that fire back at us, surprise, surprise, when we joke around saying, hey, do these do these guys know they need to be losing right now to get a really significant draft <laughs> This is pick. a big one tonight, JR. <laughs> Huge game here in St. Louis between the Blues and the Philly, or the, the Flyers. I, I mean, they're in, a, yeah. they're in a three-way tie with, with Detroit and Washington at 77 points. Vancouver's got 75. Ottawa's got 80. Philly's got 71. Like, you are within striking distance of potentially drafting seventh overall. The question for me is, like, you covered this team when they went through that stretch of 2006 to 2010 of drafting players in the high rankings of the draft. Do you feel like there is some significance to this team getting a significant draft pick this offseason? Yeah, I think so. And first of all, yeah, I do feel old. I do remember calling Eric Johnson and telling him, hey, I just talked to the Blues and Larry Plow said they're going to draft you number one overall. And he said, I am. They are. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you had hair then, JR. <laughs> I had hair back then. So, so yeah, I've been around uh, for a while. But I think it's a situation like this. Yeah, if you have a chance to jump into that top one or two, even three, you're going to get a player who's going to come in and just change the franchise. I mean, he really is. And, but, and, you know, whether you can get that guy at five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. here's the one thing I was talking to somebody about this a couple of days ago, you know, when you were talking about uh, rooting for the Blues to lose and get a better pick. I mean, go back and look at these drafts where you see the Blues take a Keith Osborne and then later on Quebec takes a, a Joe Sackick. Like, you're not always going to get the best player just because you draft higher. The, the chips are going to fall, right, where they may here with the wins and losses down the stretch. And, yeah, you're going to jump maybe from 3.5% to 6.5% chance to get counter yeah, brother. It, it, yeah, if you're in there, if you like that 3%, okay, that's fine. I realize these games don't mean anything down the stretch. I guess all I'm saying is we could sit here and, and talk about the Blues in June having the seventh pick overall, and they take a guy, and everybody's excited about that guy. And in four years, you realize this guy didn't turn out, didn't turn into anything. Or we could be talking about the Blues had the 11th pick, their draft uh, – staff did a tremendous job they got a great guy and this guy's an all-star so you know i just i just try to look at it from the other way whatever's going to happen down the stretch with these games happen but it's going to be up to the draft class uh in terms of uh their staff amateur staff to, to do the right pick and, and i think that's uh 
what they've been studying all year for. Follow up to that, Jr. Uh, not many people know much about Tony Feltron, who is the uh, the man in charge of the amateur scouting. So he's going to be the guy that's in charge of that draft. Is there confidence around the league team that he's able to connect if they do get a significant pick here? Because for the longest time, it was Bill Armstrong. Yeah, I think so. There's a lot of confidence in Tony. And, and when Bill left, uh, I don't want to say that was a surprise, but uh, he had been a, around a long time after taking over for Yarmouk Kekalainen and then found himself a, a GM job in Arizona. And, you know, that was kind of during the COVID time. And I remember uh, they, they appointed Tony Feltrin, and he's got some experience. He did this uh, with the Islanders, and he's been around for years, and he had been a blue scout for a long time, so well-deserving of that promotion. But I think at the time, Alex, it was a situation where, okay, Tony's going to take over for now, and then we'll see what we do with a permanent hire down the stretch. And, you know, Tony's done a good job the past couple of years. Blues have made some good picks. And, you know, when you have the confidence of a Doug Armstrong, I think that says a lot based on the guys they've had in that position in the past. So, uh, you know, kudos to uh, Tony. And, and yes, to answer your question, a lot of confidence in the organization uh, for Tony and his staff to make that right pick. All right, JR, time for the question that has been making the news around the St. Louis Blues. Uh, It's... It's one that's tough to talk about. Let's let's just be totally upfront and honest. But I know you guys were asking. Braden Shin answered a question on this. Craig Berube answered a question on this. Uh, it is newsworthy. The Blues announced their plans for Pride Night tonight, and they will not be wearing their warm-up jerseys. You mentioned that over on The Athletic. You reported that there. The Blues have previously worn the Pride jerseys during warm-ups uh, last year when they had their Pride Night. Now, you have a great piece on this over at The Athletic. People should read it for the full context of everything that is going on with teams' decisions on whether or not to wear the Pride Night jerseys. There have been some players that have opted out of this while their teams were wearing the Pride Night jersey. One specific reason uh, is because some players of uh, fr- from Russia have opted out after Russia's anti-gay laws were amended last year. Uh, JR, from your reporting, your conversations about the Blues, what have you learned in their decision-making process not to wear those Pride Night warm-ups tonight? Yeah, here's where it stands in my eyes, you know, talking to some people within the organization the past couple days about the decision, is that uh, the Blues say they want to put the focus on the initiatives that they have in place for tonight's game. And I don't need to read those, but there's a long list of things that the team is going to do at the rink tonight, auctions, everything they've done in the past, you know, a year ago, just going back a year ago, they did wear the pride jerseys and everybody wore them. If Ivan Provrov in Philadelphia decides to wear the Jersey or this doesn't become an issue, do we see the blues wear the pride jerseys tonight? I think we do. I think that a lot of teams around the league are probably still wearing them, but that became an issue or a hot topic at that point when Provorov decided not to. I think all the organizations took stock in it. It became a headline league-wide. And so the Blues did their due diligence, and behind the scenes they had many, many meetings trying to decide what to do. And talking to these people is a very, very difficult decision. Uh, But it came down to they want to support Pride Night. They want to support the gay community. That's the release that they put out yesterday, and they feel – and I'm just the messenger here that wearing the jersey can be a distraction. They want to focus on the positives. They've decided not to do it. We did talk to Braden Shen. We did talk to Craig Ruby about this, and both said they want to support it. Braden Shen, if the jersey's here, I'm putting it on. Uh, In the locker room, they believe in it. But tonight, at least this year, they're not going to wear the pride jersey. 
JR, people can read more about that over on The Athletic. You did a great piece explaining all of the backstory on this for The Athletic. Again, people can find it there. Uh, It is worth checking out for some of the context to all of this. Appreciate the time, as always, my man. Enjoy the game tonight. We'll talk with you again soon. Sounds good. Thanks, guys. You got it. That's Jeremy Rutherford of The Athletic joining us here on the show. So I want to read this quote from Braden Shin because I think it's about as good of an answer in my opinion, as you can give on this discussion. So Braden Shin was asked about the decision not to wear the pride jerseys in the warmups. He said, quote, there's a lot of initiatives around pride night at the rink as players. We've always supported it in this room. People are going to have different opinions and you respect everyone's opinion, whether it's on the topic or other topics around the world regarding the blues organizational decision, not to wear those jerseys tonight, the, the warmups, You show up to the rink, you play, you support the pride community and the gay community, and that's really all you can focus on. We support it. I support it. If the jersey's here, I'm wearing the jersey. I've worn it in the past, so for me, I support it. Absolutely no problem with it. Encourage it. That is my opinion on it. Again, that is Braden Shin's quote earlier today uh, to JR and the reporters that were out at the rink. Here's my personal thoughts on the matter. And this is just my personal thoughts. You can have whatever your thoughts are. Alex can have whatever his thoughts are. Everybody's free to have their own opinion on it. But I do, to a degree, understand that the Blues as an organization are in a tough spot in this. If it were my decision, I'd wear the jerseys. But you have to keep in mind, and I think JR's piece is a good explainer on this, For certain players, specifically those that are Russian, there is more to consider than just whether or not you support anything. And this could be whether it was Pride Night or something else that is in their home country, something that is viewed a lot differently than it is here. And so if you're the Blues, just as an example, if you know there are one or two players that because they're Russian, and I don't know this to be true, but just as an example, you know there are one or two players that will not wear the jersey because they say, hey, this is going to be a problem for my family back home. I'm not doing it. Is it better then? And I think this is just where the discussion is, and I'm not saying where I fall on this. Again, I would say wear the jerseys. But as an organization, is it better to have the players wear it while knowing there are going to be a couple of guys that do not wear it for that reason? Or... Is it better to take the spotlight off of that prior to the game and say, hey, as a team, we have come to the decision not to do this because we want to have the focus on the positive elements on this, as opposed to what we all know the questions would be afterwards, which is, hey, why didn't X, Y and Z end up wearing the pregame warmups that I think that would be this is my guess. This is just a guess. It is me reading between the lines. That is my guess as to why this is happening. You can disagree with that decision, and I think that is more than fair. But I think that is the context as to why this decision was made. And just a real quick kind of blue side of this thing, because JR mentioned the list of things that they are doing. This isn't just a matter of, well, they're not wearing jerseys. They're just calling it a, a, a pride night, and then they're moving on. They've got uh, plenty of programming throughout. They have a former winner of Pride Idol singing the national anthem, and then they're doing a bunch of giveaways for different organizations that are tied in to the partners that the Blues have with this Pride Night, that is Pride STL and You Can Play Project. So there's a ton of initiatives throughout the game this evening at Enterprise Center that are going towards that rather than just saying they're wearing their jersey, they're not wearing their jersey, and moving on. Yeah, there's a lot of context to just as there is with 
any complex situation, this specific one. Uh, somebody says, guys, it's been pr- found that the Russian excuse is false. I, I get it. I- I'm not arguing whether or not I agree with their decision. I am trying to add context to why the organization came to this decision. So that that's where they're at. That is why they decided to make this decision. Somebody else from the 314 says, guys, please stick to sports. Tuning out the rest of the day. Be better tomorrow. I'm really sorry, but this is one of the biggest stories in St. Louis sports right now. It is a news story as well. And therefore, that is why we are talking about it. I wanted to ask JR about it. I gave you guys my thoughts on the matter. My thought is very simple. I'd wear the Pride Night jersey. That's my personal opinion. If you don't want them to, that's fine. That's your personal opinion. But that's where I stand on it. I gave you all the context you got you, uh, that they've got. That's where we're at. And it's... A, a sports story. I, I mean, Marty Walsh, who's in charge of the Players Association, uh, addressed that with the media last week, saying like, yeah, this is something that we're going to be talking about with the players and the NHL going into next season of how to handle uh, Pride Night and theme nights around the National Hockey League. So to say stick to sports, this is sports, <laughs> and it's affecting the NHL, and it's going to be affecting the NHL moving forward. Hey, man, any other, or if we've learned anything in the last Three years or so it's that sports are not always just about sports. It, <laughs> there is always an intersection between sports and our day to day lives. Oh, yeah. So hey, last year we had to talk about the covid vaccine stuff. A few years ago, we had all of the protests that we discussed here on the air. If there's stuff that involves sports that ends up going bleeding into our day to day lives. It's the way that this works, guys. That is the way that this works. Coming up next, 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line for better to forget it here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Vegas sets them up, and we're here to make the call. It's PK and Ferrario's Bet It or Forget It on 101 ESPN. is the air comfort service text line for bet it or forget it. Don't you dare interrupt my ooh-hoo-hoo-hoo, T-Bone. I was talking to BK, and you had to start singing. Oh, sorry, the people want my voice. That that sounded cocky. I apologize, ladies and gentlemen. My voice is awful. I watched a documentary over the weekend about, like, music trends with the 90s, and Boys to Men was one of the episodes. And there was a snippet of it where they were talking about their end of the road song. And they said, anybody who tries to sing end of the road karaoke style is not a good singer because you can't sing like them. And I said, (laughs) well, this is really awkward. Well, they're right. Uh, All right, Alex, let's let's start with this. My first better to forget it. Better to forget it. Steven Matz goes at least six innings with three or fewer runs tonight. Gives the Cardinals a quality start. Here's a T-bone special. Another six innings for a starting pitcher. Uh, forget that because who's he going up against? The Atlanta Braves. And how do they hit lefties? Pretty well. Okay, good. Yeah, I'm going to forget this one. I I think you're looking at probably around five innings. And I, I, the three runs I like because I think Steven Matz is going to be able to work around Atlanta's ability to crush left-handed hitters, but I'm still out on the six six innings. For what it's worth, Atlanta was third last year in OPS against left-handed pitchers. 
St. Louis and Houston were 1-2. So they were very good against lefties. And the Cardinals are going up against a lefty that, uh, well, they've never uh, seen before. Yeah. That bodes well. I will say I'll bet it mostly because they really need him to go six innings. So (laughs) good or bad. It was your heart, wasn't it? Yeah, and he's on one of my fantasy teams. So I will say bet it. I, th- I think he'll go six innings tonight. He's got the swing and miss stuff, and just like Jake Woodford, he had a really good spring. So what could go wrong? I'm actually going to say bet it. I am optimistic right, about Steven Matz this season. I think he's around a 3-5 ERA at the end of the year. Gives you about 155, 160 innings, somewhere in that <sighs> range optimistic. I am. I'm feeling hey, good about Steven Matz going into plus, so. I, that is the part that I disagreed with. So everybody's changing their opinion now. The quality will be there. I'm not sure about the quantity of innings, but tonight I think he gets six out of him. Alex, do you have a better to forget it for I us I do, today? guys. Bet it or forget it. By season's end, the Blues will be eighth overall in terms of draft. Ooh. So right now they're 10th. They're in a three-way tie with uh, Detroit and Washington, Vancouver's two points behind them, and Philly is six points or five, four points behind them. Uh, I think they'll be in the top eight I, tonight. I I was kind of kidding, but actually serious about this. Tonight's a really big night for the Blues to be able to move up potentially to seventh, and the reason why I say that is because right now they have seventy-seven points on the season. Philly is at seventy-one. This is basically a four-point swing. If you win this game and Philly loses. Talking about 79 points on the year for you, 71 for them. That eight point difference with what, five games remaining at Mm -hmm. that point? I mean, it's basically insurmountable. But if you end up being just four points ahead of them, there's a real chance to be able to swap spots there, and they would then have the head head to head win over you. So I I think they do end up in the top eight. My hope is that if they lose tonight, and kind of rooting for that, honestly, uh, they end up seventh because seventh would still be in play at that point. They're not going to get top six, though. Sixth is out of yeah. the realm of possibility. Arizona, you can't catch them now, yeah, so sixth is done. Seventh is the best you can go. Of them. You, you basically need them to win out, you to lose well, out, they, and then some help. Well, they uh, they only got four games left, so oh, well, you're done. pretty much done. Yeah, I, uh, I'll, I'll bet this, too, because I think the only game left on the schedule that the Blues could potentially win is Philadelphia, and that's tonight. All these other four games left, Rangers, Minnesota, Dallas twice. Those all screen losses. So I, I'm going to bet this. I think they end up finding way back into that spot. I'm going to bet this one too, but my concern now is Washington because Washington can be officially eliminated from the playoffs tonight. And if that's the case, they start shutting guys down. And Washington has won twice over their last 10 games. Jeez. Vancouver is the one that's got a game in hand on you. Detroit's got a game in hand, so they can expand it a little bit. So uh, the sweet spot right now is eight or nine with the potential to get to seven. You could really use a win by Washington at Montreal. That would help you out that a lot. Would, <laughs> that would be really nice. We should do a daily like who should you root for tonight because everybody should be rooting for the Buffalo Sabres. The scoreboard watch time. Yeah, let's root for the Buffalo Sabres. Take Thompson. Is, this is depressing. Detroit watch. Red Wings. We need a Detroit victory over Montreal. Um, you need a uh, it'd be great to see a regulation loss for the blues which that hurts to say uh and then we're gonna read a little canucks and a little san jose sharks action there we go that's what we've got for the blues preview tonight t-bone what do you got for better or forget it bet it or forget it jordan hicks will be in the cardinals bullpen by season's end i'm gonna bet it because they have invested so much into him but i could absolutely i mentioned this before the season 
I could see a world where they decide to trade him at the deadline and somebody else is just tantalized the same way that the Cardinals were by the 104 mile per hour fastball. And they say, hey, if we get our hands on this guy, we could get him to start having more command of his stuff. And you've got a potentially dominant bullpen piece. So I'm betting it. I think that he will still be with the Cardinals, but I don't think it's a crazy thought to believe that he could be traded in the not too distant future. I'm forgetting it because I think he's going to be the piece that acquires you a part of the package that acquires you the ace that you're looking for because somebody who's selling off will be intrigued by a young, controllable asset who's throwing 100, 304 miles an hour. Um, and I think he'll be a piece of the puzzle for you to get that top-end rotation guy. I, I think he may not be in the bullpen by season's end because I, I look at him and I think at some point you just have to say, you know what, for all our time and effort... It just did not come around the way we thought it did because throwing 104 is nice, except for when other teams can hit it. So I I look at Jordan Hicks right now. He's kind of in a higher leverage spot, I would say. I think by the time we get to June, he potentially falls out of that kind of circle of trust. If that's the case, at some point, you have to look at your other minor league options and go, okay, we've got Zuniga that's sitting down there. Now, he did struggle in his first outing, but we've got some other arms that we like, or we're going to go add better arms at the deadline. And who becomes the odd man out? Potentially Jordan Hicks. So I, I think there's a chance he's not in the bullpen by season's end. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service X line for better or forget it. Guys, better or forget it. The XFL will be out of business after this season because of their lack of success outside of St. Louis. I'll get us started on this. I am very curious to hear what the XFL defines as success. Because this season, outside of St. Louis... I sent you guys the numbers yesterday. Most other stadiums are getting twelve to 15,000 fans per night or per week. The TV ratings are down relative to what they were in the first iteration of this version of the XFL in 2020. It's obviously been a massive success here, smashing success here. What is success, though, for the league? And how does that play into their future plans they have announced there's going to be one more year so i'm forgetting this i do not think it's going to fold after this season after that though i don't know what it looks like if they're just okay with being a minor league football league and it's cheap operational uh to keep this thing open cool no problem with that but i do think outside we have a, a skewed view distorted view of what this league is because of how successful the battle hawks are everywhere else it has not been like this yeah well and i believe um danny garcia and dwayne johnson spoke with yeah it's gonna be back next year next back next year and i mean they view it despite the numbers on the television side as a success um and it just depends on how deep their pockets are when it comes to wanting to see this thing continue to go yeah i'm gonna forget it for this year but Five years from now, I don't know if we're going to be seeing XFL football because TV ratings are down and ESPN's not going to continue to pay for the rights for it if the TV ratings aren't good. And then you look at just the operation of it. it if, you, if you're if you not selling tickets, and though it is 10,000 tickets that have been sold to some of these games, it does not look like 10,000 people are there. So I, I, I think the league is seeing the struggles. I don't know how you rebound from that if you're the XFL. So I, I think like next year forget it but five years i i don't know if the xfl will still be around i'm actually shocked the usfl was able to survive after its first year Same. uh all right final one here quickie better to forget it jordan walker hits his first home run tonight with a rookie lefty on the mound i'm gonna forget this one i think his first home run comes away from bush stadium 
That's negative thinking. Uh, no, it's not, man. I'm going to bet this. I think it happens. Oh, well, now I'm absolutely correct. Uh, I, I'll bet it, too, because I, I don't know if he's seen him or not in the minor leagues, but I would think it's someone that's not as good as like the elite starters that he's seen early on. And it's a lefty, so I'll, I'll, I'll bet this one, too. Coming up next, is this Dylan Carlson's opportunity to really regain his spot? Speaking of the lefty being on the mound tonight, my guess is Carlson will be in the lineup. Could that continue for the foreseeable future? Talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Lars Newbar with that left thumb contusion is headed to the 10-day IL, and they've recalled Juan Yepes. So testing that depth here early. That was Bally Sports Midwest reporting the news last night that Lars Newbar is going to be hit hitting the injured list. That's retroactive to the start of the season with Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks. And I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN guys. The news isn't overly pessimistic with Lars Snoopar. They say, Hey, right now he's just not quite there defensively. It's not so much about him hitting. It's about him catching the ball with that thumb that was jammed in the game. So they think he's going to be back sooner rather than later. No decision yet on whether or not he'll need a rehab assignment But that's the latest on him. Alex, this does open up an opportunity. So far, Alec Burleson has been the main beneficiary of that opportunity in the outfield. That is mostly coming against right-handed pitching. Last night, you got late into the game. Nolan Gorman came up to the plate, and instead of him hitting against a left-handed pitcher, it was Dylan Carlson who came into the game for that opportunity. Carlson now has five plate appearances on the year. He is three for five on the season, And he's been all right overall. Today, you're going up against a lefty from the Braves. You also have another one coming up against the Brewers, or at least that's what's scheduled right now. Two of the next four games, you're expected to go against a lefty starter. Is this Dylan Carlson's opportunity to regain that spot in the outfield? I think so, especially for the short sample size we've seen of Dylan Carlson and the success that he's had. Um, and I mean, Alec Burleson still got a hit yesterday, but he looked a lot different in that game than he did against the game where he hit two, uh, two doubles and had the RBIs in the home run against Toronto. All that hard still though. Absolutely. But I, I mean, this is the opportunity for Dylan Carlson to say, okay, let's see if I can pounce on this opportunity because I would imagine that it's Dylan Carlson and for, for Alec Burleson in this spot here. And that's where you get this chance. I, I mean, Dylan Carlson going up against this pitcher is a chance for you to show what you did at the end of spring training wasn't a fluke and that you are going to be that con- that consistent threat when you're in the lineup rather than just be a guy who can only hit one side of the plate. So, and this is that side, though, to be fair. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> well but, he's hit, lefties. but he's hit righties well in the short sample size we've seen this season. So I, I do think this is an opportunity for him to say, okay, let's see if we can give him a little bit longer of a leash to be in the lineup. I would put him second tonight. I would bat him second. I would put Tommy Edmond at the top of the order tonight. I would have Brendan Donovan at the bottom. And I know that he doesn't have significant splits, but Tommy Edmond's really, really good against left-handed pitching. This is where he's got his power. I would go Edmond one, Carlson two, and let's see how many opportunities they can get against this lefty. Hopefully you get two, maybe three plate appearances for those guys against Dodd. And let's see what they've got. I think this is a real chance for Dylan Carlson not to necessarily recapture like a starting spot, but to get back into the mix in a more significant way. He's been a bit piece so far for them. He's he's barely really seen much playing time at all. I, I want 
to see if he's got a little something there. And if he's as competitive as they tell us he is, and I believe he is, he's going to come out with some fire in him tonight to prove, hey, I'm still the guy that you guys bet on at the end of last season, and that showed you right at the end of that trade deadline day, hey, I've got a little bit of everything that I can bring to the table. Yeah, what what I want to see, too, is not just as starting, which I think he will be today. I think you'll see him in either left or center. I'm not sure what they're going to do exactly yet in the outfield. And then you probably see potentially Yepes at DH, I would think, to get a right-handed batting against a lefty. Uh, but what I'm more curious and what I hope they do is when they do get to the bullpen, because I, I don't expect Dodd to throw nine-inning shutout tonight, knock on wood, uh, but when they do go to the bullpen and they start going to some of those right-handers, I want to see what he looks like. That That's the real test for me with Dylan Carlson because, yes, this is the side that he's hit from in the past is when he's going up against left-handed pitching. They clearly do not want to see him in the starting lineup yet against right-handers. That's why they've leapfrogged Alec Burleson over him on the depth chart. But I, I am curious to see what happens when they do go to the bullpen, for example. Say it is Anderson. I know he pitched last night, but he's a guy I saw. So say Anderson comes in in like the fifth inning – are the Cardinals just going to immediately pinch hit for Carlson? I hope not. I, I want to see him against right-handed pitching, and though it's not against a starter, it is against a good bullpen, and, and you want to test Dylan Carlson early in the season. This is that spot. It's not so much against a left-handed starter for me. Where he's going to win in terms of getting back into the graces of the Cardinals coaching staff and becoming the guy that they can trust upon is more on, okay, what happens when they go to the bullpen and you see right-handed pitching? Because you're in the two spot if that's where they put him. You're in the two spot ahead of the guys that are the mashers in this lineup. So that's the test for me is I hope they don't pinch hit for him tonight. If he is in the lineup, we don't know yet. But if he's in the lineup, I want to see him against the bullpen arms against the right-handers. I, I know what he is against lefties. That, that's not a test for me. The test for me is what happens when he starts facing right-handed pitching. Yeah, my, They'll do the lineup game later. We don't know what it is so far. But my, my guess on the lineup today is they'll try to put as many right-handers in there as possible. And so you'll see a bunch of dudes. In, in fact... I do wonder if maybe they take today as an opportunity to get Brendan Donovan a day, day off with the quick turnover with tomorrow being a day game. I don't know which one uh, they'll try to, to use. Taylor so. Motter. Oh, no. I, I think you might. Maybe you see a little bit of Taylor Motter today in, in the field. This is his first opportunity to get uh, some playing time because my guess is they'll go Edmund Carlson, Goldie, Arenado, Contreras as your top five. And then probably O'Neal six. And then Walker, Yepes, and then either Motter or Donovan. They're at the bottom of the order. And you basically buy one, of, probably buy uh, Brendan Donovan a day here. Um, and then tomorrow you'll get some of those other guys a, a day off potentially. But I, I think that's probably the way that they go about it. And if that is the case, I'm totally with you, T-Bone. I, I want to see what Dylan Carlson can do against right-handed pitching late in this game. Was it real? Was what we saw in spring training real? Or was that a bit of a mirage? And he's just going to be a platoon guy this year. And there's worse things than having a really good platoon option, whether it's to start out the game or for a late game option. Like there may come a point in time in May or June where you say, hey, it's an Alec Burleson slash Dylan Carlson platoon for a spot, either as your fourth outfielder or as a bench back kind of thing. Right. That, that's possible. Maybe it's uh, Lars Newtbar and Dylan Carlson that ends up being that platoon. That's possible. I want to find out today, though. And the other guy that I'm curious to see is what does Jordan Walker do against a lefty? What kind of damage can this guy do against somebody that is a little bit more on the level of what he would have otherwise been expecting at AAA this year? Um, that That's going to be interesting to see because so far he's seen a whole heck of a lot of proven pitchers at the major league level. This is the first really unproven guy. He's and seen. has still come away with success against these proven guys in he's terms of the, the rotation crap out of the ball, dude. Yeah. It's amazing to watch. All right. 
Speaking of that offense, it's been impressive so far. T-Bone, you brought up a hypothetical scenario earlier today that I wanted to pass along to our audience. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. What is the hypothetical that you want to present? So we've seen the offense be really good so far this year, and the pitching be lackluster. Let's say we get to the trade deadline, and Jack Flaherty hasn't proven to be an ace, and the pitching is still kind of middling or below average, and the offense is still competing. It's like top three or it's the best in baseball. You can go get a starter. Let's say it's a starter with control because that makes the game more more interesting. Say it is. I heard this name brought up on the Fastlane yesterday. Don't think he'd be traded, but it's an interesting, fun name. Say it's Logan Webb. Got control, can trade for him, but the player that has to be included in a package is Mason Wind. Do you make the decision to, okay, we have a great offense. Let's go get a legitimate arm to help our struggling rotation and get an ace and part with potentially a all-star caliber future shortstop that's in your system? Or do you wait, just play it out, go get like your middling arms, and then hope that something happens in the postseason for you, and then go get the ace in the offseason? Now, with that being said, I think it's fair to bring up the idea of, though your offense can be great one year, we've seen baseball do weird things to where you're not the same team Mm -hmm. the following year. Especially this Cardinals team when it comes to postseason and their offense. Um I would do that. If that's the hypothetical you're presenting in front of me, I would do that because you've got some years controllable with Logan Webb, correct? Like this isn't just your trade in form and then he's a free agent next year. Like if you were to go after an Aaron Nola, that one, I would say hell no. But if I'm getting control, yeah, I would probably do that because like you just mentioned, you can sit here and talk about how great your offense is all you want. But if you don't have the legit stud when it comes to postseason. And I'm talking deep playoff run because yeah, I believe that any pitching staff can get you through a wild card series. If your offense shows up, but if you want to go on a deep run, you're going to need that. And that is going to be the piece that people are going to be asking about. So it comes down to who's offering. If it's a Logan Webb, Yeah, I would seriously consider that. Mason one's untouchable. Oh, geez. I'm serious. I- I'm not trading that guy. After what we saw from him, I know it's spring training, and I've, I'm the one that's told you guys, don't read too much into spring training. I'm reading into it. Um, he looks like a potential star. And one of my main beliefs in baseball, you don't trade future all-star position players for really good starting pitchers because pitchers break. I would much rather build around this core of position players than trade a potential all-star, especially at shortstop. Like, if we're talking, this is crazy to say because I know what he's done and I want to build around him. And I, our audience, are, are, I can already feel the text coming in. Um, I would be more likely to trade Nolan Gorman than I would be to trade Mason Wynn. And that, I know, is taking away from your current stud lineup that you've got available to you. And it definitely takes, you're robbing Peter to pay Paul in this scenario. But we've talked so much about the depth of this lineup. If you have to rob a little bit from Peter to pay Paul, and Paul is now like well, well fed, and he's a millionaire suddenly, like, okay, I, I would consider doing something like that. Mason Win though, Mm-mm. nah, man, that guy is a part of my future in a significant way. They have been holding on to him this long. I'm not getting right up to the cusp of being able to have the present open it up at the big league level. And then say, ah, mm-mm, nope, too slow. Too, 
He's going out somewhere Isn't it else. amazing how fast we turn on this? Because last year it was a matter of, yeah, Mason Wynn, you can trade that and get whatever you want right now. And now it's no way. He's not no well, touchable. I didn't feel that way last year. I didn't feel like you just I'm not saying you. I'm saying there was a ton of people that were like, yeah, trade him. What do you need him for? Go get the guy that you need right now. I, I hear you. I think that was mostly because like the guy was Juan Soto, who's one of the five best players in the sport. And if we were talking about the Cardinals needing a bat and you could go get one of the best bats available, maybe the calculus changes a little bit here. But on the position player for pitcher conversation, that changes things for me, man, especially with a guy like Mason Wynn who has that kind of potential. I I wouldn't do it. I I wouldn't do it either, but I I think it is a fun hypothetical because if you're talking about an arm with control, the number one guy teams are going to ask for is Mason Wynn. Yeah, you're not making a trade Um, unless Mason Wynn's involved with it. And I, I think there is some validity to saying hey we probably should go get that arm because we've seen it i mean baseball is such a wacky sport you could have a great offense and think that's going to translate for years to come and the next year you're just kind of middling so i i do understand the argument if you are someone that said yeah in that scenario i would trade mason win i do think the cardinals would not do it either because it would be kind of what mo has said in the past where we don't feel like we need to go all in in years because that's an all-in move that is essentially not only is this an all-in move for this year that's an all-in move for two to three years because you're getting rid of one of the top prospects in all of baseball who could be, as we said, a legitimate superstar shortstop potentially. So I, I wouldn't do it either, but I, I do think it is going to become an interesting conversation if we get closer to the deadline and this offense is performing and the pitching staff continues to kind of middle. And I, I think what the Cardinals would say is it's not worth the price to go get an ace. We'll have to go solve this in the off season, And that's where the conversation comes to. Are they willing to pay someone yeah. Aaron Nola type money to bring him? I in? also so you're think not going to solve it. I also think they're more likely to trade for a guy on an expiring deal. Like you brought up Aaron Nola. The price for an Aaron Nola is significantly lower because of the contract than the price for a Logan Webb. And we're just using him as a placeholder, right? It could be any of the 10 different guys that become bandied about by the time that we get to the trade deadline. If you're talking about Aaron Nola with two two months left of club control, it's a heck of a lot different, man. And you might be talking about, like, would you trade Gordon Graceffo and a lottery prospect, like basically your version of Juan Yepes that was thrown into the deal when Juan Yepes came over. Would you be willing to do that for an Aaron Nola? Well, sure. Yeah, this is a different conversation. Now maybe I'm willing to have that talk. And also, I'm hoping that they would then re-sign Aaron Nola in the offseason as well. So they get the early contracts negotiations in play with him. So that that's a different talk. Mason Wynn, for me, is barring something unforeseen. Like, if we're talking about Shohei Otani and they're actually willing to pay the price to keep him in St. Louis, maybe, okay, <laughs> that, yes, then I'm willing to have the conversation of Mason Wynn and Nolan Gorman and more for Shohei Otani. That's not realistic, though. And so for most most pitchers, I, I'm just not trading Mason Wynn. I'm not, I'm not giving that guy up in those kinds of talks. From the 217, Wynn can be a Jeter, right? Well, then he's overrated, and I don't think Mason Wynn is overrated. Glad we've gotten the there The jump chore is coming up next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's open it up. The Junk Drawer with BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Fenton Bar and Grill. Best trashed wings in Missouri. Dine in. Carry out. Seven days a week. All right, let's dive into the Junk Drawer. Guys, you... I think it's fair to say that I'm not particularly uh, handy around the house. Yep. 
checks notes. Forgot that you have to plug in a garbage disposal. Yeah. No, it wasn't about plugging in a garbage disposal. I didn't realize that there was a on and off switch on the garbage disposal. Yeah, and it got that's flipped. better. I think it's a little better. It's on the side. It's on the top. You have Who to would have known. Note to self, for any of you out there that have any garbage disposal issues, before you have to get a replacement, definitely try the, the reset switch. I would try that first. Note to self, when you plug something in, it probably has an on and off switch. <laughs> Turns out that is correct. So I mentioned to you guys yesterday, I recently got a new AC and uh, furnace. They've been working great so far, but it got a little warm over the weekend. So we, for the first time in the spring, turned on our AC unit. Didn't feel like it was working. So I reached out to the guy and I said, hey, you know, I, I'm i not sure that our air conditioning is working right now. He said, oh, what, what's going on? So, well, it's 74 in the house. we got to set it 69. It, I, I don't think that it's cooling down the way we, we were expecting it to. It's got cool air, but it's certainly not cold. It's like, all right, I'll get you taken care of. We'll have somebody come out on Monday. All right, cool. No problem. No harm, no foul. I know exactly where this is going. They came out, checked it yesterday. All is well at the Casa de Kylie. There's a raccoon in it. Alex, what would you guess went wrong with our AC unit? Why wasn't it working? Your fan wasn't on. No? Well, kind of, in a roundabout way. So, our power went out two weeks ago, probably, when some bad storms came through. Apparently, it uh, flipped the breaker. I was unaware of this because everywhere else in our house, nothing, nothing was wrong. I went down and checked the breaker afterwards and it seemed like everything was flipped correctly. It was not. It was turned off on the breaker. So this guy came out for a service call. I kid you not, Alex, for three minutes. <laughs> the first thing he did, I mean, the first thing he did was check the breaker and he's like, hey, man, just a heads up. Your breaker was off for the AC unit. That was your problem. Should be good to go now. I said, oh. That'll be $300. <laughs> well, it was under warranty, so we're good. Oh. He said, thanks for having me come out. See you guys next time. <sighs> I think he kind of assumed that there was going to be a next time, given the state of that call. <laughs> well, considering that this man just forgot to check his breakers when the power went out. Yeah, I would say he assumes he'll be back very I soon. I felt like a complete... Jacked on. Wait, you were there when he was there? I, I thought you were here at the studio when he was there. So he got there right as I got home. So oh, he was checking everything still- as I walked through the door. <laughs> oh, yeah. he. If, if I was that man, I would say I'm waiting until this individual comes home so I can tell him what I did. That, I, that, that is more I than a work slip. Mortified. Absolutely mortified. I looked at him in the face and I wanted to become a ghost in that moment. I felt like I wanted to be Alex Ferrario at a grocery store where I'm like, can I, how do I disappear? The old Southwest commercials want to get away. That was me in that moment. I was like, this is the most emasculating thing I've ever had. How often do you go check your breakers when the power goes out? If everything turns back on every time I, I, I did. I went down and checked. I I didn't check well enough, obviously, because I'm incompetent, but it was working. Um, (laughs) It just, it wasn't cooling. Like, because the fan was on, on. but it wasn't the actual AC unit apparently was off. (laughs) I was unaware of that fact until yesterday around three o'clock. Look, not to defend you because, you know, I, you know, think you're we'll move past that. (laughs) Like my power has gone out and everything turns itself back on. No, I go check the breakers, but 
I check the breakers when something's not working properly when it goes back sure. on. And that was the first time you checked your unit. Now, when it stopped working, I would have said, well, the power did go out two weeks ago, so maybe I should go back down and check that. <laughs> that, that, that was my problem. That's where you <laughs> and I are, are, are separate so there. The thing is, I did go down there. I, I did go down there and check. I didn't check well enough. And I don't know if that's better or worse. That's I can't decide. I, I, don't you like just open it? Open, close. All right, done. Oh, but the breaker was switched over, right? Or was it switched off and it, you looked at it? So it wasn't too far over. It was one of those where like it takes over just a little bit, just enough to not totally. You know, okay, <laughs> so this thing was this breaker was flipped off and you looked at it and you said, this looks fine. Yeah, I don't know what that's connected to. Okay. It's got to be fine. Good. Do you have your breakers labeled? Uh, yeah. Do you? Okay. The guy, the guy I, before me did. I, well, so, that's what I'm saying. Ours, let me be clear. I did not do I that. don't think my apartment has them labeled. So see, like ours wasn't when we moved in. And like I went out there when we moved in and I flipped every breaker on and off so I could label it because what a nightmare when you don't know what breaker works to something in your house. 314-399-9646 is the air comfort service tax line. I was working in animal control back in a different life. Multiple times, I was called out for a bird in the house that turned out just to be electronics beeping. Is that better or worse than what I did? Oh, that's worse. No, that's better. Like, there are some, like, alarm clocks that sound like birds. So that's that's better than what you did. Yeah. Now, this is this is higher up than the, than the garbage disposal, I believe, but it's still pretty low. Yeah. I was maybe you should like hire somebody to be like the technical person like the at the BK home. helper basically. Yeah. You should get somebody around for that. He's Alex Ferrario, that's Sienna Hendrickson. I'm an embarrassment to society. Coming up next, no, just your house. How does the increase in goal scoring around the NHL impact the Blues roster building this offseason? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. taking place around the NHL. Blue's not alone in that regard. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. We'll get to some NFL quick hitters here in just a little bit. But Alex, as of yesterday morning, the league was averaging more than six goals per game. It was the highest such rate since 1994, which comes a season after the league also saw a scoring surge. Last year it was at 6.3 goals per game. The highest number that we had seen at that point since 1996. What does it mean? Well, a whole lot of players are on pace for a whole lot of points. There are 12 players right now that are on pace to reach at least 100 points this season. We have not seen that many players get to the 100-point plateau in a single season since 1996. This is unprecedented in the last 20 years, at least, levels of scoring around the NHL. Alex, there was a piece from Pierre Lebrun over on The Athletic earlier today about the scoring spree that we've seen in the NHL this year and what it means for team building around the league. When you look at the Blues and you think about that, how should it play into their team building process this offseason? I think it's 
continue to lean into your offense and transition that has gotten you, I want to say to this point, but in their last 12 games has gotten you to the point where you're the highest scoring team in the National Hockey League. JR even referenced it with the speed of this team. It is very noticeable. The The matter of fact is as you're building this and leaning into this, yeah, you want to have the offense and you want to have the players and the transition and the defensemen that jump into the offense. But you also have to have a mind in the defensive game. And to the point of Pierre Lebrun in his piece, Doug Armstrong was cited on it, talking about, you know, how he views the state of the NHL moving forward. And he said, I personally believe that you still have to have the defensive minded players on your roster, even though defense has changed over the years. Like you don't have the cross checking in front of the nets anymore. You don't have the ability to throw guys to the ice when they're trying to get a backdoor tap in. You have to let those happen and work it with your stick rather than your body the the problem becomes when you don't have the defensive minded forwards that are protecting their own zone just as much as the offensive zone and to that point I just went back and looked at it um, the last 10 years in the postseason the highest scoring team uh, over a 70 game stretch was 3.6 goals per game and that was the Colorado Avalanche Offense is not the same in the postseason as it is in the regular season. And that's where the teams that have the defensive minded players, they usually reign supreme over teams like Edmonton when you get into the postseason. So it's interesting. I just looked up the teams that are the highest scoring teams in the NHL so far this season. This is the list. Edmonton, Boston, Florida, Buffalo, Dallas, Tampa, Seattle, New Jersey, L.A., I might as well have read you a list of teams that are currently competing for the postseason. Mm-hmm. Like as much as we talk about the defensive liabilities that the blues have this year at a certain point, I think you just go all in on this. And that doesn't mean you throw like you just say for to hell with the defensive stuff. It, we don't care about a goalie anymore. We don't care about getting defensive minded defensemen. No, if you can find all around players, like you go get those guys. There's a reason why the best players in the league can play a 200 foot game. Like I, I'm totally here for all of that. But like the worst teams that are on that list are Florida and Buffalo. And Buffalo is the one that, like, man, they do not play any defense whatsoever. Buffalo is fourth in the league in goal scored this year, and they've allowed more goals than they have scored. That is a hard thing to accomplish. And despite that, because they are so great, overwhelmingly great offensively, right now they are just five points out of a playoff spot, and they have played two fewer games than Pittsburgh, who is the last team in the Eastern Conference when it comes to the playoff spot right now. You can't outscore your mistakes right now in this version of the NHL. So for me, and this is my own personal sensibilities, I would take this and run with it. I would go with this transition game that you were talking about, Alex, and say, how do I add more goal scores to what we have currently? How do I build around Jakub Verana and Jordan Cairo and Pavel Buchnevich and Robert Thomas and Braden Shin? What can I do to add even more scoring threats to this mix? Problem is it just doesn't it doesn't translate well in the postseason. And I know Edmonton made it all the way to the conference final last year, but I mean, look at 
how Edmonton made it to the conference final. Look at what kicked them out of the conference final. It was the fact that their defense was giving up all of those odd man rushes and their goaltending couldn't and, stop yeah, it for Mike you. Mike Smith. Absolutely. But that's like when Jordan you talk Bennington, I think is what changes this for you. When you talk about what's going to make the success in the postseason, it comes down to goaltending first, but then you're also finding ways to tighten things up in terms of allowing those scoring chances. And when I mean, we're Colorado won the title though last year and Colorado. Yeah. But I mean, Colorado was a really they were a tighter defensive team in terms of how they performed because their goaltender wasn't that great. Now, Darcy Kemper's numbers look better than what you might believe with that. But the, the, the whole point I'm looking at this is this is why Boston is viewed in everybody's eyes on top of being a president's trophy team as a team that can make the deepest run and has the best odds of winning a Stanley Cup. They've also allowed the least amount of goals in the National yeah, Hockey I mean, they're League. They're just like a historically great house. team. They're the, they're the outlier relative to the rest of the league and, this year. And that's why I don't know if teams are just going to lean. There are some teams that will absolutely lean all the way in on like we're going offense and we're not changing much. Like Buffalo's probably going to be that team moving forward. But even Edmonton has taken notice of like we got to get better defensively. Matias Ekholm was a trade line deadline acquisition because they knew they couldn't continue the, the success that they've had. And, and there will be some teams that view it like Doug Armstrong that says, that's fine. And we want all of this offense, but you got to have your Patrice Bergeron. You got to have the guys who are sound defensively so that the transition game can work. I, and I'm all for that. As long as that guy's a really good player all around, like Patrice Bergeron has 57 points so far this year. He's got 27 goals. He's he's also a damn good goal scorer uh, for the Boston Bruins. And so, like, you don't just give up a bunch of offense to have that guy in your lineup and to put him on the ice, you know, 18 minutes a night. He also has to be somebody that I can trust offensively. He also has to be somebody that I can say it's almost like in a, a lineup in baseball now. If a guy can't hit 15 home runs, like he just ha- he's not capable of doing so, it's almost hard to really have him as a part of your lineup in a meaningful way right now. I think the same thing's kind of true in the NHL. If you don't think there's any scenario in which that player scores 15 goals for you, I'm not sure that's a guy that I want in my every every night lineup in my top nine because of the way that the league is trending right now. Are the guys that maybe are outliers in that scenario? Probably. There's probably somebody that you could point to and say, BK, but what about this player. I'm sure there's outliers of what I'm mentioning here, but in general, because of the way that the league is going, I think that's probably the way that I would try to build the blues roster this off season. And so when you look at the top nine, I think there's really one spot that you need another guy to be able to fit into that has the ability next year to score 15 goals for you. Coming up next, we'll dive into some NFL quick hitters here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. Let's dive into some NFL quick hitters. Alex, let's start with this. I think the draft really starts at number two this year. Number one, we all know the Carolina Panthers are taking one of the quarterbacks. The favorite seems to be CJ Stroud, but there's some buzz. Maybe it's Bryce Young. It's probably going to be one of those two guys, though. The Houston Texans, it feels like things are starting to trend in the direction of not taking a quarterback, what? which is absolutely baffling. Earlier today, Lance Zierlein, who covers the Texans down in Houston, but also does a lot of NFL draft work for NFL.com, put out his mock draft. He had the Texans going with Texas Tech senior edge rusher, 
Tyree Wilson at number two. He had the Panthers going with Bryce Young, so he had C.J. Stroud available there at number two. Did not have him going at number two overall to the Texans. And Alex, if that happens, if they decide, the Houston Texans, to not take a quarterback at number two overall, it will be one of the worst NFL draft decisions that I have ever seen. And that is regardless of what happens with these quarterbacks three, five, seven, ten years down the road. It is a complete misuse, a misallocation of resources. If they have a top two pick in this year's draft where everybody agrees there are four legitimate first round level quarterbacks and they say, eh, we're good. We'll take the defensive end. That GM should be fired immediately. That might be a worse job than uh, what's his face who traded uh, DeAndre Hopkins for a, a washed up running back. Bill O'Brien. Yeah, Bill O'Brien didn't work out too well for him. Yeah. The only scenario that I could sit there and say is, okay, did they trade that pick down? Because maybe they're just trying to, to stink for one more year to get That's Caleb different. Williams. That's different. But if you don't draft a quarterback and still stick with the second overall pick and, t- and take a defensive player, you should be fired immediately. That is that is just malpractice. Yeah, I, I can't believe that this is even becoming a thing that we're thinking about to where the Texans aren't going to draft a quarterback. I don't even know who their quarterbacks are on their roster. I, is What's-his-name still on the yeah, roster? The same guy. Davis Mills? Yeah. yeah. Stud. Yeah. I uh, New Ryan Fitzpatrick. I, I would definitely, especially because if, if C.J. Stroud is the number one pick, like, if you're the Houston Texans, it's oh, worth taking a shot at Bryce Young. Like, absolutely. I, I still think Bryce Young's the best quarterback in this class. So I, I I don't understand the idea of, hey, you know what, let's just take a defensive end, unless it is just as simple as, yeah, we're taking for Caleb Williams. But I think you should also read the room and look at, like, you know, Washington, who's going to start Sam Howell, who's not good, Tampa, who's going to start Trask, who's not good. Like, there, there are other teams already starting this tankathon for Caleb Williams. I don't know if I would be wanting to get involved when I hold the number two pick. Yeah. Uh, This is ridiculous. All right. Speaking of the NFL draft, the next thing that I wanted to bring up is really just this quarterback situation in general. Guys, the order that everybody has these quarterbacks in is starting to get funky. Hinden Hooker is working his way into the mix. We talked about this last week, how much I, I don't understand it whatsoever. He's old. He's hurt. And he's a guy that played in an offense where he's going to need at least a year to translate to the next level. It's a lot of concerns about Hinden Hooker developing at the NFL level. He is now working his way into the top force for some people. Anthony Richardson, depending on who you listen to, is either the best quarterback in this year's draft or not even worthy of a top two round pick. (laughs) I I feel like Bryce Young has gone from like a can't miss to a guy that everybody is hesitant on. And CJ Stroud, depending on who you listen to, is either super safe or super risky because of the way that he plays without a whole lot of mobility. Alex, what do you make of this year's quarterback class? Just kind of in a big picture sense right now. It's it's just uncertain, which I feel like is always that way when it comes to quarterbacks, with the exception of like the Trevor Lawrence's where you, you kind of knew what you were getting. But it feels like there's going to be more mistakes made with this draft than there will be of, oh, that player is going to change the outcome of our franchise. How many quarterbacks do you think ultimately go in the first round? Four. I don't think Hendon Hooker goes first. I don't either. I think this is a lot of buzz that we hear every year, like last year with Malik Willis. Like I think I saw Minnesota Vikings now are projected to take him 23rd overall, and it's like, okay, this isn't happening. I'd agree with that. In terms of this class, it does feel like it's just a whole bunch of uncertainty to where three, four quarterbacks could go number one overall if you're looking at it. I think we've just settled on Stroud's going to be one because that seems to be what the buzz is the Panthers are going to do. 
I, I don't know if you see a lot of these quarterbacks end up being like stars in the NFL, though. I, I think at best case, they're all kind of in that middle of the pack. All right, final thing here. Hard knocks. There are four teams that are eligible to be on this year. The Jets, the Bears, the Saints, and the Commanders. Jets, Bears, Saints, Commanders. If you could see one of those teams this year on Hard Knocks, we will. Which one would you go with? I mean, it's pretty obvious, right? It's the Jets. I think it's either the Jets or the Bears. I think one of those two teams for me. Bears would be fun. Jets is the train wreck that I just don't want to take my eyes off of. I don't want to see Aaron Rodgers. Oh, yeah, you do. No, you want that darkness retreat. Coming up next, we'll talk to Dave Reed, former NHL forward, now an analyst for NHL Network here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. Very happy to go out to the hotline to be joined by Dave Reed, former NHL forward, a Stanley Cup champion, now an NHL network analyst. You can watch him on NHL tonight, tonight at 6.30 and tomorrow at 4.30. Plus, he will appear on NHL network throughout the rest of the NHL season and the Stanley Cup playoffs. He joins us now here on BK and Ferrario. Dave, we appreciate the time as always. How you doing today, man? Hey, thanks very much. I'm doing well. How are you gentlemen doing? Uh, We're doing all right. The season has not gone according to plan here in St. Louis, Dave, but uh, we have had some reasons for optimism. One is Jordan Cairo, who uh, at a young age has put up 36 goals so far this season, but he's done so with, I I think it's fair to say, some defensive lapses in his game as well. What have you made of Jordan Cairo's season this year with the 36 goals that he's put up for St. Louis? Well, I'll start with this. Uh, you can't teach people to score goals. <laughs> and Jordan Cairo knows how to score goals at 36. You can teach players how to play defense. And um, some players take a little longer to understand how important that is, and other players uh, pick it up right away. But you got to remember, most players coming in the league didn't have to worry about defense. Uh, whether it was in junior or college or wherever they came from, unless you, know, unless you got some guys who came over from Europe and played with when men, men's teams and understood that the, the way to play and move up the, the rankings in your, in your rosters that way. So um, I think Jordan Cairo is, is still very uh, immature as, um, as a player. And uh, I say that because um, his skill set and his understanding and his want to be offensive is is overtaking the rest of his game. And um, mature players develop and realize, you know what, if I cut back a little on the offense and improve my defense, so we're going to have more team success. So, I mean, I, and I'm saying that playing, you know, I've played in careers with the likes of Steve Eiserman, watched him grow, and Mike Madonna I played with, and uh, Joe Sackick, and, and all these players um, were great offensive players. And when they won Stanley Cups. They were known for their two-way games and how great defensively they were and how responsible defensively they were. At the start of their career, you didn't mention hard defense with them. So not that I'm going to compare Jordan Cairo with these guys, but um, you know, we're talking about a very talented offensive player in St. Louis. So uh, I think this year, you know, let's hope it's growing pains for everybody. And Jordan realizes, hey, you know what? I want to play in the playoffs and to do that. I'm going to have to just tweak things in my game a little bit and um, be a little more team responsible. And I, I'm sure 
I'm sure that'll come around. You know, Dave, a lot of people here in St. Louis, they see that and the issues that he's had and said, oh, well, you know, that's on Craig Berube to get the best out of him. And I know you were on the broadcast for NHL Network that game against the Predators where Berube and Kairu kind of had a, a shouting match at the end of the second period. But from somebody who's won Stanley Cups and is, who've played with those superstars and has seen a ton of young players enter the NHL, is the growth of a player like Jordan Kyrou more on the guys in the locker room with them, or is it more on him internally? Uh, it's a combination of everybody. Um, you know, shouting matches on the bench with a coach, uh, it all depends on relationships with coaches. I mean, I had Ken Hitchcock in Dallas and Bob Hartley at the end of my career in Colorado, and having shouting matches with the coach and kind of FU contests with the coach on the on the bench uh, it wasn't common, but it, it was a little more common than you would anticipate because you're in the heat of the game and the battle of the game, and until you actually can sit down and look at the video together and break it down, um, it, it's it's I'm right and you're wrong, and the coach thinks the same thing. So uh, I wouldn't read too much into things like that. But I, when you have a young player like a Jordan Cairo, and and it's it's getting the veteran players around him um, and getting the coaching staff and management uh, around him and, and teaching and the understanding and really simplifying things to understand that this, this is how we're going to win as a team. And, and a lot of young players, it just takes a little longer to get the team concept um, ahead of the personal uh, goals and personal accolades. And uh, it's very difficult with a lot of players to do that. A lot of players don't want to do that. They're, 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 you know, they're worried about getting their cookies and, uh, well, if I do that, I'm not going to get this many goals. I'm not going to get this contract. I'm not going to get this extension. And uh, at the end of the day, you realize that winning gets you whatever you want, no matter you know, no matter where you are in your career, how old you are, how young you are. If you're a winner, you're going to play longer. If you're a winner, you're not going to need to put up the extra, you know, 20 points in a season as long as you're a, a winner. You're, somebody's going to want you. So that's a, a mindset that. Um, you teach these young players, and it's a it's leadership in the locker room, it's leadership from the coaches, and leadership from management. So it's it's um, and you know what? Sometimes it's it's leadership from parents. Sometimes it's management talking to parents and saying, "Hey, you know what? It, it's it's you know, kind of gang up on a player to, to to get the mindset in." But it takes time. You know, uh, Jordan Kyrie is still a very young player, and maybe this not making the playoffs and watching everybody play and having the extra month off might uh, you know might irk them the right way for St. Louis Blues fans. Dave Reed is our guest here on 101 ESPN. You can watch him on NHL Network. Dave, as you mentioned, you did play for Ken Hitchcock with Dallas. Uh, we're obviously huge fans of Hitch here in St. Louis. I am curious, do you have a favorite memory, a favorite story of Ken Hitchcock and your time with him in Dallas? Oh, uh, you know what? Um, you kind of got me on that one. There'd be, there'd be, there'd be plenty of uh, crazy yelling and shouting moments. Um <laughs> Uh, I, I would say I, I came in to hitch one time just a per, on a personal moment. I came in to hitch, and I wasn't happy about how much I was playing. And I, I sat down, I talked to him about, you know, what my goals were, and I, I want to play more of this and that. And, um, you know, it was kind of a philosophical thing that uh, you don't always think of hitch about, but uh, it, it kind of stuck with me. And, and uh, he said, David, he said, don't worry about your, you know, kind of what I'm saying about Jordan Kyrie. He said, don't worry about, next year's contract or your next contract. He says, you need to worry about how good you're going to be next practice and then how good you can be next game. And that'll dictate whether or not you're going to be able to stay in the lineup and continue to play. Don't worry about a contract if you can't do what you need to do today. 
And it was a very simple, straightforward co- uh, conversation. But, you know, everybody you talk about hits, it's the yelling and screaming and the joking and the guy shooting pucks at him and stuff like that. <laughs> um, you know, he, he's still probably the greatest coach I ever had as far as tactician and, and motivator. I swear he had everybody on the team um, hating him at the same time, but we all pulled together and we won with him. Um, and as I look back on it, it was, you know, many of the great coaches are like that. You, you, they drive you crazy, uh, but you're all in the same boat. You know, it's not like you've got half the team liking the coach and half the team disliking the coach. But, um, no, Hitch was fantastic. I, I've got a lot of respect for Hitch. He's a fantastic hockey, hockey guy. Um, you know, Doug Armstrong was our assistant GM when I was in Dallas as well. And Army just lived around the corner from me. So, you know, you guys are very fortunate in St. Louis to have one of the, the, the best hockey minds in the game. And, um, one of the best GMs there in St. Louis. A lot of respect for Army as well. well speaking of Army, Dave, um, the, when you look at the state of the Western Conference, like uh, up until a couple of days ago, there was only one team that had clinched a playoff spot. Now, more teams have clinched. There's still a race for a couple of teams to get in. But the Western Conference has not been as overwhelming as the Eastern Conference has been in terms of Eastern Conference teams. And with a, with a general manager like Doug Armstrong, do you see this as a quick turnaround for St. Louis to where they could be back in the competition of the West next year? Well, you have Jordan Cairo, you got Robert Thomas, Pavel Buchnevich there. Those are three really good young players and young enough players. Um, Braden Shen, after watching the last game, went, went away with three assists and that, uh, I think it was the shootout loss, but um, uh, the way he battled. Uh, there's, a, there's a really good balance on, on the Blues right now uh, of youth and experience. And Bennington's not an old goaltender, but he's still a solid goaltender. Um, you know, and it, St. Louis is a place you, you're never going to worry about getting free agents to want to go there. It's a great place for players to play. Everybody loves it there. And, um, you know, certain cities are very fortunate when you can attract free agents and guys are like, yeah, I'd love to go there. You've got, and there's always a competitive team. I mean, Tampa Bay didn't make the playoffs a few years back and, you know, in the, in the middle of their great runs and this and that. And sometimes you have these moments like they, like in, you do this year with St. Louis and it's, it's all right. It's a reset. And I think that's kind of where you're at because it, the team's too strong to say that you can't compete against the, the teams in the Central Division. You know, I, I'm, I truly believe this is still a good enough team to compete against the teams in the Central Division. And you never know what's going to happen with free agency uh, through the course of the summer. So, yeah, I, I think I think that St. Louis is de- definitely still in the mix, and Army's going to keep it that way. I'm, I think if you weren't, Army would probably have come out and said, you know what, we're going to uh, – we're, we're going to start fresh. We're going to rebuild. Plus, I think I think they got two or three first rounders coming up for the draft. Yeah, um, and and those may not be selections; those may be flipped for players uh, that are going to be useful players and uh, help the team win next year. So, a lot of teams with the, the picks are like, "Yeah, that's great," but um, you know, we're going to get what we want for the future, and we're going to be able to flip those for something that we can use right away. And, and you know, Army's been around long enough to understand that. Uh, Draft picks are, are an asset, not always used to select 18 or 19-year-olds. Dave, final one for me. Uh, speaking of this Blues team in the last 12 games, that offense has been one of the best in the NHL. And I know there's been some talk around the NHL, specifically Pierre Lebrun put a piece out on The Athletic talking about how the offense is at an all-time high. Are we seeing that transition of the NHL maybe away from more of that Ken Hitchcock style that was a focus on the defensive side of the game to now all about the offense? Yeah, I, I think that I think it's uh, I think it's a good thing. Uh, I think we are seeing that. Uh, what I what I really think, um, and the reason I think we're seeing it is it's the puck possession game. You know, like in twenty years ago, even fifteen years ago, 
Um, you didn't take the puck down low in the corner and have five guys close and then try the breakout. I mean, every team breaks out to the center right down, uh, not in the slot, but in, in kind of in the low part of the circle there, that instead of just going up the boards with it or behind the net. And you do it in the neutral zone. Teams are looking for that pass in the neutral zone, whereas 15 years ago, there were between blue lines, you didn't think of passing it to the guy in the neutral zone unless you had all sorts of space. Now you're throwing it between legs, you're saucering over sticks, and the skill level of the players from top to bottom is able to do it. And the coaches are like, all right, you know what, let's do it. And every team is happy to play that way. There's not a team in the league that says, don't try to be offensive, don't try to create. When, you know, and I think that's the newest thing about coaching. It's like we're going to let the players create. They go back, they look at the iPads, they understand right away the players, oh, hey, you know what, it wasn't there, but if I did it this way, it was there, whereas we couldn't do that 15 years ago. They weren't doing that. So uh, I think it's a great transition to the offensive part of the game, even though I still think the defensive structures are there on teams. You know, Even though it's not uh, defense first, defense first, and a lot of teams it is defense first, the skill level is just so good that you can't stop it. And if you do, you're taking penalties. I mean, Guys don't hook and hold like they used to anymore, and that's just creating more freedom and more plays and more offense. So um, I think it's fantastic, but being a defensive forward, I still see plenty <laughs> of smart defensive players out there and, and defensive structure. It's just, the skill level of these guys is just so scary good. Like they, they saw pucks over two sticks in between legs right on a guy's tape for a backdoor tap-in. And you know, that, that didn't happen 15 years ago. It didn't happen... 10 years ago, and it's happening with frequency today. I mean, the Michigan, I mean, seriously, guys didn't even try that in practice years ago, and now guys are doing it in games. How many times do you see between the leg passes or flips? Or, I mean, the skill level is just uh, is remarkable. So I think it's a combination of everything, and I love it. I think, I think it's great. I'm, I'm quite happy to go back to the 80s when you're playing eight, six games, and um, you're down by three. No big deal. We can come back, and we're seeing that. So it, it makes it makes for great entertainment and that's what hockey is all about it's it's an entertainment business and um, i i think it's a lot of fun hey dave this has been great to catch up man thank you so much for the time today we appreciate your work over on nhl network and we always appreciate when you have a little bit of time to share it with us here on 101 espn oh my pleasure guys thanks i'm gonna miss the blues this year in the playoffs it's always fun always fun watching always fun watching dinner do his thing. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're going to miss him, yeah. too, and we our, our crazy goaltender in the postseason. <laughs> You'll have to get your antics elsewhere this year, Dave. <laughs> All right. That's See you, Dave. Take it easy. That's Dave Reed here on 101 ESPN. Again, you can watch him on NHL tonight. Tonight at 630, tomorrow at 430. You'll catch him on NHL Network throughout the rest of the NHL season and, of course, the Stanley Cup playoffs. Yeah, he's right. Who's going to be chucking water bottles at people this postseason, huh? It's a good question. People can complain all you want about Bennington and his antics, but he provides entertainment. All right, Alex, we don't talk a lot of, like, national hockey conversations here that don't include the Blues. What's the most compelling storyline in your mind in this year's NHL playoffs? Boy, that's tough because there's a lot of them. Um, I I personally believe it's the narrative of the state of the NHL. Do the Boston Bruins win the Stanley Cup because of, yeah, their ability to score offense, but because of how stingy they are defensively? Or is it a team like Edmonton or a team like the New York Rangers that is all, or Toronto, Toronto is a perfect example, all about offense? Because that always seems to guide the offseason of general managers of this is when the Black or when the Kings were winning the Stanley Cup. Everybody went defensive sound, big bodies, four check, heavy play. 
And then when the Blackhawks started winning, it was let's get all of the offense and have that two-way style. And then when the goaltending starts stealing the show, like the narrative always shifts in the postseason. So I, I, me personally, I think that's the biggest story going into the playoffs. You've brought it up a million different times, but I feel like it's the, not to steal your song, but the end of the road. Um, don't for, sing it. For Boys to Men doesn't want you to. Like Toronto's got to win this year. And if they don't, they don't get out of the first round. And right now they're still pitted against the Tampa Bay Lightning in the Which, first round matchup. Did you see that Vasilevsky in three straight games went 3-0 and and had two shutouts? Nice. Who could have seen this coming? Yeah. He's um, just gearing up for the postseason. Like, Overrated. If, he, if they don't advance, they're going to make changes there. Yeah. Pittsburgh. Right now, they're going up against Boston in the first round of the postseason. <laughs> That's not they might be not make the playoffs if they don't. Man, what are you doing in Pittsburgh? Like, what what is the next iteration of that team look like? Because, who, buddy? They got some cap concerns after what they did last offseason to Was- keep the band together. How about Washington, you got a guy who's trying to break Gretzky's goal record and has said, "I'm not going to play on a team that's rebuilding." Absolutely. What the I- hell are you going to do, oh, uh, Edmonton? <laughs> Like, yeah. how many times can we keep hitting our head against this glass ceiling of what does it look like? I'm not saying they're going to trade Dreisaitl or um, McDavid. McDavid. Like, th- that would be ridiculous. But eventually you got to change up something about your core roster. So there's some there's some really intriguing storylines. And New York, like, they're not even going to be favored in their first matchup. They're going up right now against New Jersey. Yeah. New Jersey is probably going to be the favorite in that matchup. The Rangers have built all this star-studded power. Man, it has not worked the way that they were hoping that it would. And you called this one, Alex. It, it's not surprising to a lot of people. So I, the, in terms of storylines, this is about as good as it gets for the NHL's postseason. It's weird to say because typically, you know, when the Blues are in the playoffs, that's the excitement when they're out. Nobody's really watching it, which I can understand that. But to think of the implications of what this postseason could mean for the Blues offseason is the intriguing factor in all of this because Toronto blows it up. Doug's got weapons to call yeah. and say, hey, we can make a trade with you guys if you want. We'll hit the rewind coming up next. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's run it back with a daily rewind on BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Stewart's American Mortgage. Google the bagel loan. Featuring zero fees and zero closing costs. Tanner Hendrickson, and I'm Brandon Kylie. If you missed anything from today's show, be sure to check it out on the podcast page, 101ESPN.com, and the 101ESPN app is where you can go to find it. It's all presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. All right, we finish off where we started today, which is the Cardinals rotation, and my simple stance is this. It's all good. It is A-OK. It's yeah. the first bleeping week of the season. I know it didn't look good yesterday. I know it hasn't looked good really at any point this year when it comes to your rotation. You're 24th in ERA. So far, you have a 7.1 ERA from your starters. Imagine being the Blue Jays. Not ideal. Alex, I think this is going to get turned around sooner rather than later. In fact, I think tonight. I I think that Steven Matz is in for a good year. I think tonight he gives you a quality start. And by tomorrow, people are starting to... Calm down a little bit. I think it's going to be a okay. In fact, in, in a weird roundabout way, 
I thought last night there were some some real signs of encouragement from Jake Woodford. Oh, he did have a little bit of swing and miss. Was it the 495 uh, home run that was hit by Austin Riley? 475. Oh, sure. Okay. What about uh, the Ronald Acuna Jr. one that went into the uh, parking lot behind slider Ballpark Village? Slider didn't slide. It's fine. Oh, yeah. uh, he missed up, and the slider didn't move. And those were the th- basically three pitches didn't go well for him. I'm not telling you he's great, but I think Jake Woodford continues to be a perfectly fine number five starter for you and will be that throughout the course of the season. I think you'll be all right. I don't think that you have a number one on the staff right now. It's kind of my overall thoughts on where we're at. What are you talking about? You had a no hitter through five innings by your number one starter. So seems like it's all fine right now. Jake Woodford's the one that I was like, "Ah, okay, but again, perfectly fine for a number five in your rotation. As long as you could cut back on the home runs, everybody's going to get grace period when it comes to this rotation, because it is the first bleeping week of the season. According to Tony LaRussa, you give them a little bit of grace period. There's two guys that you're watching. It's Flaherty and Woodford of how they go the next time out. Michaelis felt like an anomaly. Montgomery was fine. What does Steven Matz do today? Those are the pinpoints right now. Yeah, I, I think everything's going to be fine. And, and again, there's only been one inning from each starter, really, outside of Jack Flaherty, where it just was not there for him. Jake Woodford retired eight of the last ten last night. Jordan Montgomery had the inning where I think he gave up three. Michaelis, it was the first inning. So outside of one inning, their starts have been pretty encouraging. So I think you just get rid of that one inning, and things are going to subside as we get going into the season. We'll talk about Stephen Matz's start tomorrow here on the show. I'm looking forward to seeing what Dylan Carlson has in store for the Cardinals tonight as well. For Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. The Fast Lane's coming up next. We'll talk to you guys tomorrow at 11 a.m. here on 101 ESPN. I'm an embarrassment to society. You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.